If the most mythic stories in human culture are all about the hero's journey, then how about video games? Just how mythic and important can a video game's story be if we consider it as a piece of literature? Well, that's going to be one of the many very interesting things that I talk about with our guest on this episode. Uh, my guest is the translator Emily Jin, and we're going to be talking about the video game series Gujian, uh, which are basically, to put it in like one phrase, wuxia video games. Pretty exciting stuff, and a really interesting addition to our uh, wuxia season that we're currently doing on the show. But before we jump into the interview, it's time for the Trichific News. So we have three items in the news today, and I've got them all open on little tabs on my browser, so I'll just go through them and quickly summarize them. So our first one is really interesting. It's an article that's up on the South China Morning Post, scmp.com, and it's an interview with an author who I've covered very early on on this show. It's Murong Xuetsun, the Infant Terrible, I think that's how you say that, of Chinese literature. So they say, I covered his book, Leave Me Alone, um, on the show, and occasionally there's been mention of him since. Um, there hasn't been mention of him for a while, so I'm glad I've got a chance to mention him again. So basically, it's an interview uh, where he talks about various little things. I'll just go through the topics. So the first one is Frosty Beginnings, where he talks about his childhood and his family's roots in Dongbei in Manchuria, the northeast of China, the poverty he grew up with. He talks more about that um, poverty in the next bit, where he um, also gives the story of how he got into reading books and stories. Then he talks a little bit about his time in law school. Then his entering the section is called Labor Market, basically the first work he started doing and if you've read Leave Me Alone or if you've listened to my episode on it you'll know that work yeah the world of white collar work is pretty much the setting of that book in China in the early 2000s Next session is Internet Sensation. That's how he went on to become a famous author via web publishing. I guess we shouldn't say web novels because that would imply like, based on the last few episodes, you'd think I was talking about wuxia and crazy genre fiction. But he was publishing more like realistic fiction on, on the web, as you'll know if you've read the book or if you've listened to my episode. So yeah, um, after that, we've got how his story of how he was published, how he was found in translation. This is interesting because I was always curious about um, the publishing house and the guy Harvey Tomlinson, who is based out in Hong Kong. He's the guy that brought Murong into English translation. So that was interesting. Then Murong talks about a trip uh, with his publisher, his, his uh, English language publisher, uh, to the UK and the things he did <laughs> in the UK. I was quite surprised uh, what Murong got up to. You can read the article and find out. And then the end of the article is perhaps the meat where he talks about being a, a dissident writer of sorts and how he's tried to secure his freedom of speech as best he can, even though it's getting harder and harder. And Last of all, he kind of talks about things in the context of the COVID outbreak that started in Wuhan and is now everywhere. So yeah, fantastic article and really nice to know that 
Murong still keeping busy and is still in contact with English language publications. Uh, next little news item, it's another, it's a book this time, uh, or at least a blog about a book. I saw this on Twitter, thought it was a cool thing to bring up. So it's an article on the website of Andrew Batson, who seems to be a, a fellow who blogs about Chinese uh, things and books. And the book he's blogged about is Land Wars, the story of China's agrarian revolution. And he's just written kind of a little summary with some quotes on it, quotes from it. And he focuses on one of the characters of, well, I say characters, it's nonfiction, but one of the big figures in the book, uh, Xi Zhongsun, who is current Chinese president Xi Jinping's father, because um, Xi Zhongsun was involved in the land reforms. But as has been, uh, as was revealed in some documents, which were originally only for internal distribution in one of the Chinese uh, defense universities, the documents basically, um, one of the things that are, is in there is the story of, or not the story, records of Xi Zhongsun pushing back against the kind of more radical or violent plans um, for land reform. So basically, um, a bit of a ideological is maybe a grandiose word, but a clash of sorts between Xi Zhongsun, so Xi Jinping's father, and Mao, you know, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong. So juicy stuff, I suppose. Um, I will link to that blog in the show notes, and you can check out the book online. Okay, last news item. This is not exactly hot off the press, but worth covering now. Um, So the Newman uh, Prize for Chinese Literature has announced its nominees for its 2021 prize. It's every two years that this prize is awarded, so that I guess the nominees have been announced ahead of time. Um, I'll link to the post that uh, where this was announced, but let's just go through the nominees and who nominated them. So Xu Xiaobin was nominated by Chen Xiaoming, Long Yingtai was nominated by Aileen Chao, Su Tong was nominated by Huang Yunte, Wu He was nominated by Andrea Bachner, and Yan Lianke was nominated by Eric Abrahamson. So how does that relate to the show? Well, aside from being about Chinese literature, um, we covered Su Tong. Uh, we did. We looked at his Petulia's Rouge Tin and the episode I did with Anya Goncharova, uh, formerly of Penguin China, now with a Peony, Peony Literary Agency. And Eric Abrahamson is a former guest on the show. He was on the show to talk with me about Gilfe's Flock of Brown Birds. Nice to see familiar names. That is all the items we've got for our Trichific News. Um, before we get on with the episode, I'm just going to take a chance to talk about the show's Patreon because I normally talk about this at the end of the show when the, like, the end music starts and I figured some people might be tuning out. Um, so essentially, uh, you know how Patreon works, I'm sure. You give a little bit of money to the show, i.e. me, every month. The minimum amount is one USD, and that will get you access to lots of different bonus shows. So there's hours and hours of stuff up there. Uh, most of the bonus shows, well, are all bar two, are me on my own. So if you like the solo shows, which I don't do very many of these days, and you want more, uh, there's some stuff up there. I do I do mix it up on the Patreon, so I cover uh, non-fiction stuff. I cover stuff not written uh, sorry, stuff written in English, not translated from Chinese. For example, I looked to, I did a little overview of a book called The Greeks in Asia. The book was about the ancient Greeks um, everywhere from Persia through to India. But I looked at the kind of, it's for the most interesting part for me, certainly, but the most relevant to the podcast, Greek, uh, ancient Greek cultural exchange, actual and theorized with uh, China, with the particular dynasties of the time. Uh, another one I did kind of probably outside the remit of a normal show episode that I looked at was um, I looked at Cat Country by Lao Shu, and I compared that with a Japanese 
kind of modern fiction classic, I Am a Cat. Um, so I did like a cat versus cat, China versus Japan thing. So if you, if you like fun stuff like that and you'd like to support the show, that's the Patreon. Not going to do this for many episodes, but I just thought it would be good to get a little bit of this promo at the front. Now I will stop babbling and let's hear my chat with Emily Jin. I'm sure you'll be entertained by it because it was a really fun chat to have. So I've got Emily Jin on the show. Hi, Emily. How's it going over there? Hello. It's going great. So I'm speaking from my home in Beijing at the moment. Um, this is still part of my summer break at the moment. And um, it's great to be talking to you and to people about my favorite game. Yeah, we're here to talk about, um, well, Gujian 3 slash kind of all the Gujian games. But before we talk about what the game is, can you tell the listeners a wee bit about yourself or your journey as a translator? And I guess if there's like a a saga of how you first discovered Gujian, you could tell that too. All right. So um, as I mentioned, summer break just now. So um, I'm currently a PhD student at Yale University, um, Department of East Asian Languages and Literature. So that's kind of my actual main, I guess, quote unquote, job at the moment. But um, I think as people kind of know me online, I'm also a translator. Um, I mostly translate science fiction and fantasy. So I do translation both ways from Chinese into English and English into Chinese. So that's kind of the two big things about me at the moment as a person. But it's cool because this time I get to talk not just about, I guess, job and academics, but also about like this major hobby of mine, which is um, I do gaming a lot. And Gujian is definitely one of, I would even say kind of one of the most serious RPG games that kind of got me into gaming at all. There's three games to this whole series and the first one came out in 2010 and that's also the year when I discovered it. So I think I was maybe back in high school. Um, Yeah, I I was in high school at that time. And when it came out, I kind of was very into the aesthetics in general and bought the game. I think back then was when you still have to actually buy the game and um, you can't just download it. So Mm. I bought it and immediately got myself immersed into the world and all just kind of carried on from there. And it's been 10 years already, actually. Um, we, just, we just celebrated the 10th anniversary of Hu Jian on July 10th. So that's literally just like a week ago. Mm, yeah, I remember um, back in 2010, I, for the first ever time I bought a game. Well, wasn't the first time I bought a game, but I bought a game. It came in a box and there was no disc in the box. It was a download, uh, download code. So I guess that was around the time when that transition was happening. I guess mm-hmm. we should specify for the listeners, Gujian is a wuxia game, which makes sense that we're covering because we're in this podcast wuxia season. So um, before we before we get into like what makes Gujian wuxia, could you just describe what it is for any listeners who haven't heard of it? Well, so I think the official description to it would kind of be it's this classic RPG game where um, I think we have to note that I think I know that right now when we think of RPG, we think of, let's say, Diablo, where you go into the game, you kind of like roam around the map freely and you just kind of kill monsters everywhere. But I think back in 2010, that was when you still kind of take rounds to like throw magic at the monsters and like, I don't know, like hit the monsters while you're in the game. So you definitely are more restrained while playing. Um, But I think to me, Gujian, definitely it's pretty classic, I guess, at least in the Chinese gaming history of how it's built, how the story is told, how it's programmed. 
um, how the engine works, but the way it stands out is that it really embodies both the Wuxia narrative tradition by, I guess, following one or two protagonists that kind of go on a journey and slowly upgrade themselves. But also Gu Jian does mythology really well. Um, I think it's very active in incorporating a lot of elements from multiple sources of Chinese mythology, um, as well as a lot of uh, ancient texts and traditional culture. I would say it's a very quote-unquote cultured game, if I could mm. call it that. Yeah, and um, what you said about the difference between games where a character roams around and in their fights, you know, they move in 3D space in, in real time versus the other style of RPG games where fights are done turn by turn. Um, like the, the games I've played in the RPG genre are more in like the, the former style, although I can think of a game I've played in, in the latter style, the turn-based one. Um, mm-hmm. And just to be clear... Now, I know Gujian 3 is, it's not, the, the fighting is real time. It's not taking turns. And I know Gujian 1, because I, wa- I, I watch some playthroughs, that's a turn-based one. Uh, I don't know about this, the second game. Is the fighting in Gujian 2 also taking turns? No, it's actually really interesting because you can really see how the programming is like upgrading um, mm. throughout how the game is developing. Because the first one is definitely still taking turns. And it's like very strictly like closed map, um, turn-based fighting. But in Gujian 2, when you get into like, let's say a boss fight, they kind of pull you into this map zone where it's just you and the boss kind of in your little space fighting. And while you're in that space, you're kind of fighting freely and kind of not. You're kind of like in between. And when you get to Gujian 3, it's completely just like open map. Mm. So um, I think for, I guess, players who have really followed this game from the beginning can see how the company's been improving in making their games more and more, I guess we call it like advanced, more playable. And I think definitely Guzian 3's free map attract a lot of people to just kind of try it out because I think um, even my friends who are used to playing more, I guess like Blizzard-like games, when they tried Guzian 3, they were just like, oh, okay, like the graphics are nice. The way that the fighting structure is like what I'm used to, it's no longer, I guess like, well, I guess like in the sense of playing, it's no longer quote unquote boring because I think some people, when they first see Guzian 1, they would say it's more on the boring side because the fighting isn't exactly exciting. Um, mm. It's more kind of like strategic where you have to plan like what kind of magic you use, what kind of power you use, um, and you kind of like also use potions in between. It's more like planning out beforehand what to do, and people are there more for the storyline and more for the world exploration. But when you get to Gujian 3, people are definitely more immersed into the actual fighting, and um, I think that's something that attracted a lot, a lot of people just because of the way it's played. Yeah, and I, I don't know if, if you can help me with this one, um, but when I was reading some of my comments and reviews about um, the Wujian games, I think I saw some commenters comparing it to Final Fantasy, and I've never played a Final Fantasy game. I have some vague memories of watching someone play it, and I think their fight, the fighting in, that, in those ones was turn-based. And I remember some of the visuals in what I remember remind me Remind, yeah, remind me now of some of the visuals from Gujian 3. So I, I don't know what answer I'm expecting here, but did, have you ever played any of those Final Fantasy games? And do you know if they're at all an influence or in any way related to, to Gujian? Um, 
This I'm not exactly sure about. Um, I have played Final Fantasy, but I think I was just mostly more into Final Fantasy XIV, which is the online one. Right. Um, that's completely different from its turn-based classic RPG games. But I wouldn't be surprised if it has been kind of a source of influence on Chinese games in general, because I think a lot of the game makers who right now, even just the general team for Gujian, um, I think it's mostly people who are born in the 80s, and it makes a lot of sense that I think the Japanese gaming culture and Japanese animation culture in general have had like a huge influence on them. So I wouldn't be surprised if Final Fantasy was like a source of um, inspiration. I know that Elder Scrolls influenced Gujian quite a lot. Mm, um, right. That came from an interview, but um, I don't really know about the, the Japanese side. Right. This is going to sound like a really superficial comment, but a thing I noticed um, a little bit in Gujian 3, but maybe more in Gujian, the, the gameplay I watched of Gujian 1 mm-hmm. and 2, the characters had hairstyles, especially the male characters, had these hairstyles that were almost as crazy as or fantastical mm-hmm. as some of the ones you'd see in like a Japanese anime or, or a game, but a lot more subtle and maybe equally related to the kind of traditional hairstyles you'd see in a Chinese historical drama. So yeah, when when I was watching the um, the gameplay, I was seeing a little bit of both in my mind's eye. But yeah, there's, there's no question there. And before I get bogged down in haircuts, uh, here's the next question. So going back to those fan comments or people commenting on Gujian that I saw online, um, I saw people not not arguing, but kind of nitpicking or looking for evidence or points as to whether the Gujian games would be better described as wuxia, as we've kind of been talking about them, or shensha, which is kind of like wuxia's fantasy cousin genre, which um, I talked a lot about with the translator Deathblade two episodes ago. And Hmm. one episode ago, we were looking at a shensha story, uh, Necropolis Immortal. So if listeners want more detail about that term, they can look um, at those past two episodes. But for now, I guess we could say wuxia is the more grounded less magical or not magical genre shensha is more i don't know what can we say just fantastical more magic more of like heavenly realms than the uh, earthly Mm. realm more attached to fantasy than chinese history but equally influenced by it so yeah um is is gujian one or the other or is that a completely kind of false dilemma is that the wrong way to think about it I think, first of all, I think it's a great way to connect your episodes together. I think it's really <laughs> smart. <laughs> um, as for Gujian, um, actually, because ever since you kind of mentioned this idea to me, I've also been going over whether it's more wuxia or xianxia, because I think in my own recognition, I think xianxia points to more of a narrow, narrower sense um, of storytelling. I think in xianxia, it's, it's where, I guess, the magic or quote-unquote the xian part um, takes up most of, I guess, if you translate it into gaming language, it would be like the primary part of your upgrading, your system, all mm. of your like magic and everything. Um, but in Gujian, it's kind of torn apart because the storyline, the setting, and the world, I think it's definitely more on the wuxia side. Um, most of the towns you pass through, most of the people you meet, most of the story that's happening around you, it's definitely very kind of traditional wuxia. And I think Gujian actually has been praised by its fans for 
being this game that's deeply rooted in actual Chinese history. And even though it doesn't necessarily always specify a dynasty or anything, um, it still kind of points to a lot of historical references. Um, sometimes even just like historical figures come into the game to mm. kind of interact with you. Um, for example, Guzian 2 especially, um, the major city, uh, Chang'an, is, um, as we can all tell, it's based on the Tang Dynasty capital. Um, and one of the characters in the game, which is also someone you can play, his surname is Li, and he's also like a prince from the palace court. So you can definitely draw that connection and understand where this game is going for, um, even though it doesn't really specify, specify that it's about the Tang Dynasty. So I think all these details make Wujian a game that's very strongly ingrained in reality. But at the same time, I think just to take care of the gaming aspect, I think when you actually fight and everything to just make the visuals cool, to make kind of like to hook the players, Wujian also incorporated a lot of magic in general into the fighting system. So I think to me when I was playing, I kind of looked at the game, the storytelling and uh, world building as a separate thing from the fighting system. Um, right. Because I guess in a game, you can't just go around just, I guess, like like Wuxia, swing your swords and just cutting down people because that obviously would make the game a lot more boring than if you had like elements and magic and all these kind of like in, let's say the whole the, the whole way you improve and upgrade and cultivate in this uh, Xianxia system. So yeah. I guess that's my take on either side that Gujian is on. I can't really decide, but I guess like because of the degree of magic and also mythology in the game, if you want to count it as Sinsia, it would also kind of make some sense. I don't mm. know. I think I'd see it more as a mixture between, let's say, maybe 70% reality and 30% mythology. That's very kind of like savvily incorporated. Is that even a word savvily? That's like incorporated exactly. into the game. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a viable uh, adverb. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a thing I, I noticed even from the word go doing this interview was, although in my mind, literature is supposedly more complicated than video games, mm -hmm. I'm finding it harder to talk about this game than I usually do a story or a book. Maybe I'm just not used to it. Um, and I think that would make sense when we're trying to pick apart games, Xianxia and Wuxia, because although I'm certainly not an expert of any of those three things, um, as I've been doing a little bit of reading and research for this Wuxia se uh, season of uh, episodes that I've been doing, I, mm -hmm. I think one thing I, at least what I think I'm seeing is that Wuxia is, although it got its kind of inauguration as a genre in the 20th century, it has roots in older literature going back to, I think about the Tang Dynasty based on my, you know, very extensive Wikipedia reading. Um, <laughs> whereas the, the vibe I get from Xianxia, although it maybe has some roots or inspirations from Chinese traditions, like um, the pursuit of immortality or, or what have mm -hmm. you, it seems like it's kind of foundation is leveling up and video games. So right. yeah, like it seems like a more of a digital genre, despite having kind of cultural or ancient cultural roots. So when we're talking about a game, which is drawing from two genres, which exist as literature, but one of which kind of is more, it's more of a game in itself. I can, I can already feel my mind getting wrapped up and, you know, everything getting tied in knots. So continuing the kind of 
thread of the grounded setting and mm-hmm. the magical setting, I'd like to ask you about the settings in the game, um, the earthly mm. setting and the heavenly setting. Although actually, before I do that, I want to sneak in a question that's not in our little list here because you mentioned Chang'an and you said obviously Mm -hmm. that's the amazing capital of the Tang dynasty but um, just for any listeners who are um, not familiar with Chang'an like I wasn't not so long ago um, I wonder if we could talk a wee bit about some of why that's such a awesome setting for a game and the reason it's on my mind is I watched a film not so long ago its English name is Legend of the Demon Cat its Chinese name is uh oh, yes. Juan, have you seen that mm-hmm. yeah i have yeah. seen it and i got the feeling as i was watching it the whole point of this film was to showcase chang'an in all its um amazingness so although there is magic in the movie i felt like the point was the earthly setting so you might i don't know i feel like you probably probably do a better job than me what's so rich about the setting of chang'an and the Tang Dynasty? So um, this is quite a big question. And I guess the way I'll talk about it is that I'll try to combine it with um, what's happening in Guzian specifically to kind of illustrate what really Chang'an as a city means both historically and also symbolically. So just to give a little bit of context, like Angus said before, Chang'an is the capital of the Tang Dynasty, which essentially makes it kind of the hub of exchange, the hub of riches, is where everyone goes and it's where basically all the cool things happen. And because I think people now, even just writers and creators and like you said, movie makers, um, people who grew up immersed in Chinese culture tend to have this this kind of longing, this kind of sense of admiration towards Tang Dynasty because it's always portrayed through history books as perhaps one of the most kind of one of the one of the strongest periods um the rich, sorry. Like culturally <laughs> rich and cosmopolitan maybe that's a good word for chang'an and the tang dynasty like going off right. what what you said um mm-hmm. a thing that so i would have had no reason to disbelieve this but having like you know grown up in in scotland going through a fairly fairly um broad education system but definitely like a eurocentric one not not maliciously so if someone had asked me like what have the greatest cities in world history been my answers would have been oh maybe like athens or or, or rome but then doing like basic reading about chang'an you learn pretty quickly it was the most populous city in the world Uh, reading up a bit more i learned just how far different people were going to get to Chang'an and Tang Dynasty China to kind of emulate its culture. So, like a parallel in Europe might be the Romans trying to emulate Greece or people after the fall of Rome trying to emulate the, the old, you know, the olden, the olden world that had uh, preceded them. And in this movie that I mentioned, Legend of the Demon Cat, that's kind of the instigator of the instigation of the plot. It's a visitor from uh, Japan a monk who's trying to learn a little bit about, I think, the theology or the texts in Chang'an. And the book it's actually based on is a Japanese book. So it's mm-hmm. a modern example of people from outside China's borders looking in to this amazing cultural hub. So yeah, I've forgotten exactly where you left off, but I think what we're trying to say is that it was in world history, not just Chinese history, Chang'an is an amazing place. And the Tang Dynasty was an amazing period um, in in Asia, I guess. Right. And yes, just kind of um, thank you for helping me find my language. Um, I think just carrying off of what you said just now, 
um, I think the way that Chang'an has gained its significance, and especially art and literature, that people are essentially piling all their fantasies about the Tang Dynasty onto Chang'an, and really mm. they're imagined as a hub, not just for people from all across the reality world, but also a hub where fantasy can happen. So it's really just not a city just for travelers, for the ordinary and the rich people. It's also a place for all kinds of demons and monsters and people who are involved in the Jianghu, the Wuxia world, mm. where it's the place where everyone wants to be. Um, and so if you move that setting into Gujian as a game, you can kind of see why it's special because Chang'an is actually the first major city we encounter as we um, enter the world of Gujian 2 especially. And um, as a background, um, so actually the involvement of the royal family is actually a pretty big part of the Gujian 2 plot, where one of the main characters that you can play, um, like I said before, he's also from the royal family. So you get to see his backstory, you get to see why he needs to kind of travel the world and find certain things to help him kind of get the throne out and all of that. So he's the main person in charge of opening up the entire Chang'an slash um, royal family plot line. And I think what really made me feel the power of Chang'an visually was that kind of imagine you open up the game and kind of just trying things around and immediately you kind of leave your home base and the first major city that's just kind of like falling upon you is Chang'an. It's that sudden sense of like, wow, this is very overwhelming because I think also given the game's past history, Gujian 2 is where the vigils kind of made a leap and you can definitely see how the vigils are a lot better than Gujian 1. And so for someone who's followed the game all along, you're just very shocked and also just very happy of how this game has evolved to be. So I think for me, that personal sense of involvement, that sense of seeing your favorite kind of like game gradually grow better and better, mm. that combined with kind of like, I guess like, to be frank, what I felt back then was just kind of like, wow, like they even dared to like make a challenge in the game at all because the city is huge and they really tried to follow the historical map and the way they kind of put markets, the way they put historical buildings, the way they even just like send NPCs all around the city. It's, they've like kind of tried their best to make it as historically based as possible. And yeah. I definitely remember myself spending a lot of time just roaming around the city and talking to people and looking at corners of the city. And they like just paid massive attention to details. And I think for me, just having the idea having the chance to control this character who's not even playing the game, who's just walking around the city that I have personally admired so much or imagined so much is already in itself a unique experience. Mm, yeah. Um, what you said about um, the kind of leaping graphics from Gujian 1 to 2. So when I was watching the, the, the gameplay, I could, I could kind of see that. that um, so Gujian 3 looks fantastic. It's a beautiful game. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gujian one. As I watched a minute or two of it, I, my feeling was this is um this is a it seems like it's a labor of love because it didn't seem up to par with like the top of the range international games that would have been coming out at the same time. But I could mm -hmm. see like it was yeah, and I'm sh maybe I'm assuming here, but I got the feeling that this was a very unique game because it was a RPG made in China, probably going oh I guess. Yeah, it only had the Chinese language. It wasn't, they haven't, I think only Gujian 3 has got um, other languages built in. Gujian 3's got uh, English subs. So 
for for I guess for people in China or in the Chinese diaspora, it's a game. You know, not I guess there are other games with Chinese settings, but not made in China. And a thing I learned in my research is like these days, a lot of the big Chinese-made games, even now, are either mobile games or online games. So the idea of having like a fully fleshed-out PC or console game um, made in China about about China or drawing from Chinese culture is a special thing. And although this isn't like a perfect analogy, I feel like come, being from not America, I have a little bit of a similar feeling when a really mm-hmm. good British film comes out, or even better for me, a really good Scottish film. Because just in the world of pop culture, um, when you're a smaller country, or even if you're a country which isn't small, but doesn't have the kind of cultural industry that can compete with you know hollywood or silicon valley it's kind of special when you see something that reflects yourself um when we were talking way back um with initial ideas for this episode i mentioned uh, a game called fable which mm. was made uh, i can't yeah. yeah 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 i can't remember the name of the company and the fable sequels kind of they took an opposite trajectory from Gujian. They got worse. Um, but the first Fable game was a fantastic little thing for the Xbox. Um, it wasn't set in a real world, but it was set in a fantasy world called Albion, which is an old name mm-hmm. for, uh, I think, Britain. It's, I, think it's a, it's a, I think it's a Celtic name for, for Britain. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of like full of anachronisms. There were lots of characters with different modern accents from the different regions. And were, it had a, like a very British sense of humor to it. So it was it was a nice change from games where everyone sounds like this, where everyone's like even I remember games like Halo, where you're fighting in the uh, the United World Army. Mysteriously, mm-hmm. everyone is American. It was just <laughs> a nice change from that sort of um, world. I think I've got completely lost. Oh, yeah. The point I guess the point was about why it was maybe special for people to be playing in Chang'an. I guess there's no question here I can ask except is am I is that am I more or less right that it was nice to have something familiar and yet different from the usual offering of video games? Actually, I think I would kind of disagree on this one. Um, so to give a little more context, I think the time that Gujian came out, it's actually Gujian is not the first game like this in its kind. Um, way before right. Gujian, I would say the beginning of this is uh, if you've heard of the name. I was reading something about a parallel game. It was it had the English name. The English name was Paladin. Let me try and look this up. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's it. I don't remember exactly what the game was, right. but it's something Paladin. Yeah, that was um, one. Yeah. So I think that's actually the classic of the classic, um, which came out super early. And I think while that came out, a bunch of other RPG games, solely based on Jin Yong's wuxia novels, also came out. So I think that was way back in, let's say, 2003, maybe. And that was when I think that obviously the technology was not as advanced. And I think people uh, back then, people were really just interested in, wow, like people are making games based on Chinese culture at all. And Mm -hmm. um, I would say that those games were the first batch of games, um, RPG games based on Chinese culture slash literature. And um, I think the commonality is that um, they both kind of take the setting of either just Jin Yong's Wuxia world directly. Um, let's say, I think during that time, a lot of games were definitely made based on um, the, what do you call it? The, the Condor Heroes? 
Uh, yeah, Legend, um, Legend of the um, Corn of Heroes is the. Yeah. I guess that's the 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 book series has taken that name, and that's based on the official translation of the TV show's name. Okay, so um, I think a lot of games were definitely based on that worldview,、mm. um, where you just follow one of Jinyoung's characters and experience what kind of they experienced in the books. So that's kind of one line of popular RPG games, and the other line is what I mentioned just now, the the Paladin game, the Xianjian. Um, mm. So Xinjiang takes place more in it's definitely more on the fantasy side.、Um, I think a lot of the places in the games and a lot of the people involved they're more obviously on the Xianxia side. Where、um, I think in one of the because Xinjiang also is、uh, a series, so I think they went up till maybe six, and now they kind of like stopped ish. But、um, they were the hype before Guoting came along, and.、Um, Like I said before, they're more on the Xianxia side in the sense that they're they've involved more magic.、Um, I think they definitely made up more fictional places, and it's not so it's not so much based on history or mythology. But then I think to me,、uh, Guoting is a mixture of kind of both of the games, and it's unique in the sense that on one hand, I think it really captures the groundedness, and、um, it really roots itself roots itself in Just culture and history, and I think one part that I especially appreciate Guzian about is when you do the gameplay, there is kind of like a separate bonus mission as you go through the game, where you actually just go into all the cities and you talk to people and you explore. And as you talk, people kind of tell you snippets about history and culture, and you collect those quote unquote special terms,、um, and you kind of like have a separate little like glossary.、Um, mm-hmm. Um, on your dashboard, where you can actually go back and check、um, what terms you've collected, and each of the terms is something that's unique about the city you're in or the time period, or explain something.、Um, so even just through playing the game, it's actually rather like educational. That I found myself learning history and learning about, let's say, Chang'an City while I'm in the game. So Guoting really did pay a lot of attention to promoting the historical aspect of things. So I think I would just put it simply that Guoting has a lot more educational value, and I think it's definitely very aware on getting people to know what the mechanisms are in their inspirations of making the game like this. And、um, you can kind of even see through the game that the main kind of storytelling team is trying to get people interested. In looking at the culture and history and mythology behind just the game playing itself, so even though some people would say that Guoting,、um, especially Guoting One, is more more or less boring compared to its counterparts,、um, others really do enjoy just the feeling of not having to rush to boss fights or missions and having the chance to really just stay in the cities and、um, actually valuing exploration as a thing. Because I know that in other games, I have friends who would just rather like to rush through and. Would like to just kind of like only do the fights and pick up the treasure and don't really care about、um, the city setting, but Guoting with its little bonus mission of picking up the glossary,、um, people actually now have to take the time in collecting stuff and doing that and getting to know their setting. So、um, I think that's one thing they do best, and、yeah. I think a lot of people gradually saw this as their speciality, and people are just kind of more and more drawn to the game because of that. And I think just one last fun fact is that actually、um, the team that made Guoting One at least 
came from um, the Xianjian team. So after making, I think, Xianjian 4, maybe, um, a bunch of their team quit that and then made a new company, which is what eventually ended up becoming the company that made Guzian. So in essence, they kind of have the same mother, but went two different directions. Right. Same kind of family tree. Um, what you were mm-hmm. saying about kind of enjoying just being in the setting, like being in the world is, I guess, well, on one hand, that's something uh, all RPGs offer in a way, but some more than others. A thing I noticed um, both playing Gujian 3 and watching the playthroughs of Gujian 1 and 2, something they all had in common, I noticed was really nice, well, really nice music and just a kind of really nice ambiance. You Like there were bits where I guess whoever was playing in the playthroughs had just um, left the keyboard. They were AFK, as they say, but it was all right because they were standing in a nice part of the map and there was nice music playing. And it was reminding me of, um, again, this was something Fable had going for it, um, nice music, where it was pleasant, to, you know, just like it's pleasant in life to be going for a, a stroll, not really doing anything. It was pleasant in uh, when I was playing Gujian 3 um, to just be walking through through a, a setting. So I guess speaking of settings and uh, enjoying them, and Gujian 3 in particular, um, at least in the early parts of Gujian 3, I found that there were, well, I say I found, I didn't find it. I, I, I experienced um, the two kind of main settings of the game. I think the most concise way to describe them would be like there's an earthly setting and then there's a, a heavenly setting. The earthly setting is where people like me, me and you live and the heavenly setting is the land of the uh, immortals or the, as they're called in Gujian 3, at least in the English subs, uh, the Fae. And the main character is kind of torn between the two worlds. That's, I guess that's the thing driving his character dynamic in, in the plot. And I thought they were both really interesting. The, the heavenly realm, uh, it's, it's kind of like a city and its name in the English subs is Sky Elk. So an interesting name. And it had like design elements. I was seeing design elements from all over the place. There, there was definitely a lot of um, Chinese design going on. Like the rooms in the buildings were reminding me of ancient Chinese buildings I've been in. Um, but they kind of, the, the roofs and the, the walls of the buildings, some of them looked like they were from classical European capitals. Some of the, um, I don't know what you call them, the, the peaks or the ceilings looked um, pointy in the way that buildings in Thailand or Southeast Asia were. So there's all these seamless fusions going on and the characters walking around Sky Elk had all these different very subtly blended costumes. They had different hair colors. So it was like this thing you wouldn't ever see on Earth but clearly influenced by Earth. And then down on on the ground, in the earthly setting, it, was, it felt much more like um, a jump back to reality. The landscape looked a lot like... Um, Guilin or Guizhou in sort of somewhere in southern China and mm-hmm. the people were very kind of grounded they were they were practicing sword fighting or tai chi or something um the music became a lot more down to earth and i was really was really felt okay i've been doing lots of fighting up in the heavenly realm now i just want to walk around and explore this this incredibly realized world so i guess my my question is if, if you've played much of Gujian 3, do you have a favorite setting in the game? And could you easily say whether it's the earth or the heavens? Um, I think in this one, I do agree that um, I think not just me, but a lot of other players notice immediately that the heavenly setting, it resembles a lot of the, again, I think, um, I think that actually felt very Final Fantasy-ish to me right. um, as I jumped um, the heavenly setting, the Skyhawk City. 
it definitely seemed a lot more European or definitely seemed like a city taken out from, let's say, a, well, some kind of anonymous game that's based in Europe, let's say, um, instead of in Guzian that I think um, a lot of the fans didn't expect to see the first major city to be like this. Mm. Um, and um, I think there were some discussions actually just based around what the Scout City looked like. And what I could gather is that they kind of purposely made the city like this first to kind of test out their new graphics. Um, <laughs> totally. To kind of be like, okay, we're now kind of sick of the traditional Chinese aesthetics. Now we're going to try for a new look and see if it works or not. This is the first part. And the second part is definitely to draw a difference between the Scout people and the mortals, which like you said before, is one of the main conflicts of the plot. Mm. Um, surrounding our protagonist. So um, I think they wanted to make Skyhawk as different as possible visually from the earthly realm. So people would just be like, oh, wow, okay, like now I'm certainly in a different world. Yeah. And to just really reemphasize this other world, otherworldliness um, of the Skyhawk city and its people. And actually, um, is now the time to kind of go off a little bit about Skyhawk as a term, or should we continue later as go we for talk it. about because I, okay. I already did that. I jumped ahead asking you about your history with the game. So yeah, <laughs> who cares? Let's um, let's jump on that now. And then if there's more to say later, we can uh, come back to it. If there's nothing else to say, it's fine. Okay, great. So um, I think regarding Skyhawk, I think the, uh, the first impression that I got while I saw the Skyhawk people was, um, I don't know if you remember, but the first woman character who came out, um, the protagonist's brother's wife, if you remember. Yep. So I think she's person who had um very light hair yeah and she looked kind of european um so i think when she appeared um on screen for the first time i was like oh wow she now definitely she, like she looks like someone from final fantasy mm. and uh, i think to me it was weird at first to kind of hear her speaking chinese and how she had obviously like a chinese name and she's incorporated into the mythology and all that so mm. i think that to me was a bit awkward but later on i kind of just accepted that uh, like I said just now, um, going off a little bit about Skyhawk, so uh, because I've played Chinese version, so mm. I know that the Skyhawk is just a rough translation. It's a direct translation of the Chinese title, which is Tian Lu. Tian Lu, so, Tian ah, okay. literally means sky and Lu is elk. So, um, well, can Lu also be deer though, right? Mm-hmm. They could have they could have called it like heaven deer or sky deer, or is Lu specifically elk? You no, know, you're you're right. Lu is kind of elk, deer-ish, like mm. that creature. Um, but I kind of understand why they made it sky elk instead of sky deer or whatsoever. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah, sky that, deer sounds awful. <laughs> I mean, even the Chinese name itself, it's actually not about heavenly deers. So I don't know if you mm. got to the part where you get to see the kind of the real monster form of the sky elk people. I remember um, I watched a. I, on YouTube, I watched some kind of a boss battle, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, now that I think about it, it was one of the it was one of the Fey. The are the mm-hmm. Fey in the Chinese? Well, I say in the Chinese. The game, the the version, the English version is Chinese dialogue with English subs. I just wasn't listening very closely to the Chinese dialogue. Is the Fei, the name Fei? Is that just Xian in the Chinese? I think that's probably just Xian. Xian, Xian or Xian or Yao. I couldn't quite tell. Okay. So um, if, I'll, I'll Xian, just say Fei or Xian and treat it as interchangeable. Okay. Um, so yeah, one of the Xian guys who I think was set up as a baddie in the early game, which I was playing, 
I skipped ahead mm-hmm. to watch the boss battles, and I think it was him transferring and in, transforming into this like horrifying demonic deer-like thing. But I didn't realize that's what they're all like. That's a bit freaky. So that's yes. So that's actually their their I guess their real body. Um, oh and I think even just the term sky elk is actually a metaphor because their race, um, I guess their quote unquote fey race in the game, is actually called bi xie in Chinese. Mm. Um, and that's a mythological reference. Bixie is creature that's modeled based on somewhat like elk, deer-ish, and also somewhat lion, dog-ish. Mm. Um, it's a combination of kind of like big animals that can hurt you. Um, <laughs> and the Bixie translates into kind of like purging evil spirits. That's the literal oh, translation. Um, right. So it's the guardian of... Um, so it's portrayed as a guardian creature and um, it's supposed to be very good at fighting and it's also supposed to be very kind of like, I guess, just like exuding light in general that it kind of fights against darkness and all of that. Even now in Chinese culture, the figure of Bixi is sometimes used in temples, also sometimes made into like little sculptures. People wear them um, to kind of protect themselves. So it's definitely seen as a guardian monster Um in mythology right uh, i guess for listeners i'll try and find some uh, articles or pictures uh, related to bixia and put them in the show notes for you guys because uh, mm-hmm. this is, sounds really interesting but obviously in, in the medium of audio all we can do is or all, i say all we as if i know what i would know what i was talking about mm-hmm. but all, all we can do is um describe them so yeah i'll put a link in the show notes um for for listeners uh, last night when I was kind of thinking, wait, is there anything else I can do to kind of any talking points I can prepare in my head uh, for this episode? And then I thought about the um, Sky Elk, the, the heavenly setting in Gujian 3. And I thought, okay, so it's got some kind of fusion of quote unquote, like China or slash Asia and, and, and Europe of, of the past or, or, or kind of it's timeless in a way because it, it seems more modern than the earthly world below so i was thinking what games have i played that have done that that have some kind of a fusion of you know in little quote marks east and west and the one that, that maybe it's because i've not played enough uh, japanese games just the just the ones that everyone else my age has played but the pokemon games at least the first uh, i played the first three gens and i guess maybe the tv show as well i they're they're mod they have a modern setting but I guess especially I remember watching the TV show thinking, oh yeah, um, all these characters have American accents. They seem to live a life somewhat mm-hmm. similar to mine. Plus, you know, they have Pokemon in their world, obviously. In my life, I have no such thing. But then occasionally something would slip through, like the characters would be celebrating Children's Day or everyone would start waving fans to cheer someone on or they'd um, approach a temple. And in the game, there were some similar things like that where you'd it would just seem quote unquote normal, but then something would something that hadn't been adapted or modified to make it westernized would, would appear. Uh, and I guess that's really different from the setting of Sky Elk, where everything is kind of, at least the architecture, and like you were saying, some of the characters' appearances are fused. And yeah, maybe the weirdest thing about it is that people who look like they're, they, they couldn't possibly be um, Chinese or have Chinese names. But yeah, I, I don't really have a question there. That was just the thing that had been floating in my head when you were... Um, talking about that so yeah um i'll just move on to the next question it's uh, about some listener feedback i got from uh i think i think either when we were covering um uh, jin yong's 
A Hero Born, the first part of Legend of the Condor Heroes, or possibly when we were covering um, Gulong's Seven Killers with, with Deathblade. Um, a, a guy on Twitter called Edmund He gave me some kind of some of his thoughts on the wuxia genre, it, and it was relating to like the themes of power and responsibility. And he tried he he gave a shot at comparing and contrasting power and responsibility in like classic wuxia and power and responsibility in um, the Marvel and DC world so maybe using like those american superheroes as a stand-in for like a quote-unquote western view of uh, power and responsibility and his thinking was that in the superhero stories from uh, america power comes before responsibility so not to say that power is more important but the characters in those stories first they become very strong and then they use, mm-hmm. learn to use that strength responsibly and uh, edmund's he think edmund he's thinking was in, in wuxia characters are trying to act responsibly first and along the way they kind of pick up some power and that definitely is an accurate description of condor heroes it didn't really describe seven killers in seven killers it seemed like everyone was very powerful and no one really cared too much about being responsible so i wonder does his kind of formulation describe the characters journeys in gujian in any of the three games at all I, 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 I don't know. I don't know because I haven't played the games uh, apart from num- the start of number three. I was wondering if would you know about that? Well, that's a very good question. I think when you were talking just now, I think I also was going through all the three games in my heart and kind of look at the stories. Mm. Um, so I think if we draw our attention to, I think, Gujian 3 at first, it's interesting because to some extent it does follow the classic Wuxia trope where the characters kind of weak at first, and then um, receive some kind of responsibility, which to our protagonist is kind of gradually realizing that he's responsible for his city, for the Skylark people. Mm. And um, because he's been raised as well, just as background, he's been raised as a mortal growing up and not actually raised um, in Skylark City, where his twin brother um, has always kind of been the king of Skylarks and has been the one who's protected the realm and kind of fulfilled the duty. And in the end, um, when our protagonist realizes that his brother can no longer be that strong figure, he really has to take a step forward and carry this responsibility. Um, Mm -hmm. But for a very long time in the game, our character kind of was just, he was neither strong or responsible. So he kind of like spent the first few hours of the game just roaming around, doing whatever he likes, spending time with the earthly people and kind of living his life and in essence really not caring at all about yeah. whatever's happening around him. He's just so normal to the point that he like doesn't seem like your regular protagonist. Yeah, at that um, point in the game, I remember I, I was fighting monkeys in the apple orchard. Right, right. <laughs> and that's kind of what he like only cared about. He just mm. wanted to be normal um, and he really had no aspirations whatsoever. Um, so I think in the beginning, he's portrayed as this kind of anti-hero even. Um, yeah, because he's wearing black and his brother's wearing white. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think whatever made him more interesting is that I think this struggle, this growth is not just linear. It's not just kind of one-sided about how he realizes and then kind of practices harder to acquire more power and to fill his duty. But because of his kind of double identity as both someone who's kind of always identified himself with the mortal people and as a kind of royal born sky elk there's always been this inherent 
struggle within him that it's not like he can't acquire that power. He just kind of refuses to embrace his way more powerful face side of his identity. So um, I think a huge part of the acquisition of power in Guzian Three, especially, is not just about practicing getting better whatsoever. It's also about kind of this internal journey where the protagonist has to realize first that he actually wants and needs the power that's spilt within him and to really kind of reconcile with not just his brother that he's been very strange to um, his whole life, but also his kind of family line, his history, his past, and to accept the fact that he can't just be an ordinary mortal. Um, so I think that took up a large part of um, the inner narrative of the story of Guzian Three. So I think that's one thing. And let me just kind of shift gears for a bit and turn to Guzian One. And the reason I'm just picking out these two and not Guzian Two is that I think um, as I'm talking, I realize how Guzian Two is. It's more or less, I guess, normal um, in the sense that I think Guzian Two is the one that really follows the classical kind of wuxia idea that people can easily kind of recognize the Guzian Two characters um, in the classic wuxia novels. But Guzian One is especially interesting and different, and it's actually story-wise, it's my favorite one because um, I think it's actually the reverse. To me, I think Guzian One has a very inherently, I would even say, well, using the term Western in a very loose sense, um, I think Guzian One it reminds me more of Marvel than anything else, really, um, mm. because in this game we get the protagonist who actually came with like an inherently built-in huge amount of like destructive power so he's i guess close like closer to evil at first than he is to good and that power came within him because of his like sad childhood life story which i won't kind of talk about too much here but he kind of carried that power as a curse as we move through the story and his shifu so his like mentor who mm. taught him how to find everything um helped him kind of contain that destructive power and tried to teach him to be a, well, I guess your typical responsible lad. Um, but because everyone else knew that he carried that power, he was kind of just bullied um, throughout his life as he was growing up and learning, and he had no friends, and he is just very lost about who he is and what he has to do. So um, when we come to the game, we see this person um, kind of just roaming listlessly on the, on the streets and fighting monsters and you don't really know where he's headed to he you don't really know like what he wants and it's just very hard to kind of resonate with him um at first as a main character because he seems already like quite powerful and you know that he like has the ability to do quite powerful things but he also just doesn't have that um because i think the sense of growth as we've kind of been I think we've been coming back to this topic, the sense of growth is quite essential to wuxia novels and games. In the games, you actually level up um, as a character, but um, in, in, in wuxia novels, you often start with the character being like a child and you see them gradually growing up and mm. learning and getting stronger. But I think for Guzian One, what really just hit me at first is how different this protagonist is, is that it seems like he doesn't really need any growth at all. He just is kind of there. And later on, you uncover his life story, and then you see how 
a lot of his struggle comes from how he thinks that he's a monster for having embodied that evil power. And he has to kind of refrain himself from unleashing that power whenever he's kind of provoked. And he tries to stop himself multiple times from harming his teammates or doing not so great things because of that wicked energy within him. And so, as you mentioned, how, let's say, like in Marvel, the superheroes actually came with more power and then they realize later on how they need to use power responsibly. That actually parallels what I've been seeing in Gu Jian One, and especially kind of regarding the protagonist's unique identity of he is human, but at the same time, the human, other humans see him as a monster and mm. his own struggles of kind of feeling like he doesn't belong anywhere and having to spend a whole lot of energy on simply suppressing that huge destructive power is a large part of his characterization. So he's definitely not your typical kind of like go-to wuxia hero. And the way that his sense of morality um, pops up is really throughout this journey, you can kind of see himself gradually acknowledging that, okay, like, I know that I will never be someone normal. I know that I can't be your everyday hero, but I'm just going to do whatever I can do, embrace who I am essentially, and go fight my fights. So I think Gu Jianwan, the whole story carried this very strong sense of tragedy from the very beginning. And I think that has a lot to do with the characterization. Yeah, that sounds, for, for a game where the visuals look so kind of simple, that sounds like a really deep characterization. I don't think I've got any more questions here, but um, there was something I was doing a little bit of, well, fevered attempt to read up and get some kind of meaningful thing to say. But when we were doing a little bit of preliminary discussion, um, I think that the phrase hero's journey popped up. And mm. this was like, uh, I don't know, this immediately triggered some memories in my head because the first ever um, academic book I ever tried, or writing of any sort I ever tried to have a go at, I think I must have been about 16, maybe 17. And I got myself a copy of uh, The Heroes, no, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And I'd been pointed to that by a very literary tome, uh, The Da Vinci Code, which referenced it. Um, so Joseph Campbell, he, I think he's, I don't think he's quite as fashionable as he used to do, as he, as he used to be. He's maybe a little bit associated with um, being, well, maybe number one, being used as a guy who came up with a theory of storytelling, which if you if you Google him now, or if you Google Hero's Journey now, you get these kind of slightly awful step-by-step guides for how to write a good story or a Hollywood movie. But if you actually read his writing, um, what he was trying to do was study all the myths of the world, ancient myths, and try and come up, at least in this book, with what he called a monomyth. Um, so one overarching story, which is kind of the story for all of humankind. So kind of an um, um, ambitious project and although it's like obviously it's kind of a mission that's doomed to fail because you can't reduce every story to one story but it's funny in his um formula just how many parallels he finds between stories and how if you look at like the points in the hero's journey that he identified how strongly some of them jump out in some of the stories that you can read today or see in films or even play in video games so like what we were when you were describing the character in Gujian 3, who's mm-hmm. kind of, he has a duty to his, I guess, his his place of birth, the Sky Elk Kingdom. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got to, it's destiny's calling for him to um, 
take up responsibility and look after it but he's kind of mm-hmm. refusing the call and those are word for word almost two of the key points that joseph campbell thought he saw in this monomyth which are the call to adventure and then the refusal of the call so the, the something pulls the the hero of the story to, to action but at mm-hmm. first he says no um and where am I? I'm, be- I'm beginning to fall flat on my face now because whatever point I was going to make, I've lost. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess if if you if you um ag- if you agree with his assumption that the hero's journey, the monomyth, is universal to what it is to be a human, and that that can infuse something into any hero story you read, it would make sense, or it would it would it would help explain why wuxia is a genre which although it's quite specifically chinese has had a fair bit of success in like uh, exporting both in literature and in films and i think why it's it's cool to see english subtitles for gujian because i know from what i've just said the third story has this story that really grabs you you could put it down to like deep archetypal mythic tropes it hits on or you could put it down to just really good writing good characterization but yeah, um, I have fallen flat on my face now. All I can say is it seems like there's an amazing mythic quality to the games that anyone could enjoy just by virtue of, of being a human being. I already mentioned it. I like how this is kind of becoming like, I guess, more of an open discussion than just answering questions. But mm. yeah, I think it's really interesting that you brought this up because also, um, yes, that's uh, Joseph Campbell who's actually also one of the first few academic books I've read when I was maybe 16, 17. So I definitely feel you on that. Mm. Um, so I think going back to the plot of the games, when you mentioned kind of the call versus refusal of the call, I can see that being executed very well in the storyline. And also in, um, let's say, if Gu Jian was written as a novel, that would kind of come out very strongly. But in a game, it's different because the nature of an RPG game is that your growth is linear. Like your levels can't just drop. So yeah. to some extent, as a hero in the game, you are progressing. You right. have no choice but to really right. move forward. Like there's mm-hmm. no way for you to turn back or to actually quote unquote refuse to call because as a player who to some extent you are fused with the character and that's mm. what makes the RPG is that you are the character. So no matter what happens on screen as a part of the story, ultimately the player who's in for getting through the game is controlling it. So I think this adds an other interesting bit. It's, it's even kind of like, if you see this as a fiction, it's kind of like metafictional in a way that it's open to the players. You're there to kind of not really decide really, but you're involved in the world. Mm. And because of your involvement, you ultimately know that the character cannot refuse his growth. That let's say if a protagonist really just didn't want to be a Sky Elk at all, um, if this was his story, his world, he could have just been like, oh, okay, whatever, let me just hang out here and maybe something else would happen. Mm-hmm. But since he's in a game, he has no choice but to be kind of controlled by the player and to really just move forward, just go. Mm-hmm. So I think I also got the inspiration of this whole sense of linearity when I was rethinking the plotline of Guzian 1, which I briefly narrated it before, but I said that it really resembles a tragedy in general, that Guzian 1 does not feel Chinese at all, actually, the story. Um, I think what I see in Guzian 1 is this, I don't know if I can even put this this way, but um, I'm also not like extremely well-read on Greek tragedy, but 
it definitely felt like a Greek tragedy to me. Where the right. practice in the beginning, he kind of knew that because of this destructive power, he would die soon, and that he already knew that he is this monster being, and this is something that he cannot resolve at all. So throughout the whole story, unlike maybe Gu Jian two or three, where you see the character kind of becoming stronger and leaving, and um, sorry, sorry, uh, becoming stronger and leaving their home and embarking on new journeys, for Gu Jian one, the whole point of the story kind of is you kind of get the sense in the beginning that you're sending your character to death. Um, that you know, <laughs> ultimately, like ultimately, he will unleash that power, and ultimately, he will die. And you're just kind of there to witness what happens in between, but there's no way for you to really escape that tragedy. And even just the boss setting in Gu Jian One is interesting because the boss is actually—I know it's like complicated—but the boss of Gu Jian One is actually kind of the how do you say this? He's like the arch enemy, but also the soulmate of our protagonist. Like a nemesis. Yeah, kind of in that way. It's kind of like their souls are literally made out of the same thing,、mm. and that's why they're both monsters in our normal people, mortal realm, and that's why only they can kind of end each other. And kind of the way to do that to stop the boss is for our protagonist to sacrifice himself. So as you kind of gradually gather those information, you know that this tragedy was really like determined to like the story was determined to be like this. Even before our actual plotline has begun,、mm-hmm. and I think、um, approaching our last boss fight, you kind of get a little bit of break in a city before the last city. And I think, like, because I've played this game many times, I always like find myself stopping in that city and just kind of pausing there for a very long time、yeah. and not want to move <laughs> on because, like, I know that like once I hit leave city, I know I can't turn back anymore. Like, it's just over, done. So to me, Gu Jian One just felt so different of this inner like tragedy, and it's almost like you already know the ending from the beginning,、mm-hmm. but you still、yeah. kind of have to get yourself there somehow. And that's a completely different vibe from, let's say, our classic Wu Xia or with all the other Gu Jian games. Yeah, it reminds me of a few different RPGs I've played where, like, you know. The, when the end or the climax is coming, you kind of feel a little calm before the storm, and you want to stay in.、Um, I can think of quite a few like that. I know the、uh, Elder Scrolls game Oblivion. I've played when it gets towards、mm. the end, hell literally breaks loose. So, or or you, you get to a final battle and you have to watch Sean Bean die, which you know many、mm. have to endure <laughs> many times, and he 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 does it again in、uh, Oblivion.、Uh, Fable Fable is has a Well, it has an like a a similar thing. Start like baddies just start popping up everywhere in the final phase of the game.、Um, so if you like a fight, it's quite good. But it has a similar, not similar, but it has a strong like a family drama tragedy.、Um, you have to watch、mm-hmm. your mom get killed after being estranged from her for a long time, and then at the end you have like a you do have a little bit of maybe some freedom or some moral choices. Um, where the I was going to mention this, how some RPGs are totally linear. linear. Others offer、mm-hmm. you some chances to change fate, but just by the、right. limitations of the game, you can't have infinite branching paths like you can in real life. Because、right, right. the, the, the disc and your hard drive can't can't sustain、mm-hmm. it. Never mind all the work the the programmers would have to put in. But yeah,、um, the feeling of not wanting to get to the end because something tragic is going to happen. I guess that's a thing、mm-hmm. kind of unique to. Some RPGs, really resonant ones, and what you were saying about this character having a nemesis, like his mirror image that he has to like kind of fuse with, and I don't know, 
die in a way to overcome. I'm sure at the end of Joseph Campbell's description of the hero's journey, he talks about this, that ultimately the hero, if, if they want to have like a spiritual um, victory, if they want to reach the real end of their journey and not become corrupt, they have to not just beat their, their, their nemesis or their mirror image or their shadow um, if you're using the union term, because I'm pretty sure Joseph Campbell was drawing on Jung. And in Jung, you don't beat your your shadow, your dark self, your 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 shitty side, or the side that you mm-hmm. can't reconcile with. You don't beat it in a fight. You don't, you know, you don't do self-improvement to overcome it. You have to accept it and let it in. And maybe maybe in a more kind of if we're being more fatalistic, even a hero has to accept that they're going to die. I'm pretty sure the formulation was a character who it's kind of a, a thing that Shensha breaks is that if a character refuses their fate, if they refuse the fact they're going to die, they become a villain. So it was funny mm-hmm. listening to Deathblade teaching me about how Shensha works, where characters become effectively immortal and become gods of the universe. And maybe that's why Shensha is a bit more of a silly genre, because characters mm-hmm. don't have to, they don't face tragedy like that um, main character in Gujia 1. Gujian 1, as you were describing. Right. Yeah. yeah well, now that you mentioned, so sad. Yeah, I remember that in the beginning of our episode, you mentioned that so Xianxia kind of already carries a game-like feeling in the mm-hmm. sense that the essence of Xianxia is upgrading, is that you have to level up, you become stronger. And I know that a lot of the popular Xianxia novels, they even have their own ranking system or even like a point system yeah. to make this novel as close to a game as possible. And it's very interesting because now that we're talking about Bu Jian as if it's a story, but there's still the game aspect to it. Mm. That when you were talking about how like some RPGs give you choices and all that, I know that one game I played, um, it's also a Chinese RPG game based on one of Jin Yong's books, but more loosely. Um, right. And that one, you get to choose who you want to marry at the end, but that's Ooh. it. So, right. <laughs> oh. so that's kind of the self-choice part. But anyways, coming back to Gu Jian, I think what's, especially for Gu Jian, one what kind of made me feel so emotional and just torn is that I see so many layers to this game. I know this might just be me being dramatic um, and just having a lot of feelings in general for this game. But in the last part where I have to like control the protagonist and kind of walk him up to like all the way up to the final battle stage and all of that, where I know what's coming and just I think during that entire like period like many things are going on at once I think as a person as me as kind of the game player I definitely feel just sad and I know that what's going to happen and I know like bad things are going to occur at the end but I have no choice because if I want to play the game I have to continue with it so I can't just kind of build my own world all of a sudden and stop this from happening so Mm even though I have my quote-unquote agency as the real person, as kind of the higher dimension being, it's not like I can do anything else. On the other hand, I can kind of see the dialogue happening, I can see characters talking in the game, and I can see how much our protagonist is struggling, and I'm just kind of like, I feel so bad for you, like you've been (laughs) through so much, like I just want you to be happy, like I love you, you're like my son, (laughs) like that whole kind of like feeling pops up, and you just really want him to be happy but and but you know that even him from his perspective as a character he knows that facing this death this ultimate enemy is the only choice he has and then you start kind of your mind starts wandering off in the more cyberpunk like 
direction, the science fiction direction, where you're just kind of like, oh, okay, but this world that you're so invested in, this world that kind of contained the life of this character, which you care so much about, is literally just made out of code. It's just kind of like you're programmed to be like this. Yeah. And then you start thinking everything about like fate and what does the narrative mean? Um, what does game telling mean? like all of those things. And it's interesting because can I just like branch off really briefly, but because I got so frustrated with the game um, after playing it, I got first involved in the whole kind of like fan community where obviously a lot of fan fiction happened. Um, And in the fan fiction world, the protagonist often did not die. Of course. Yeah. Um, People just like, I think back then me and my friends tried really hard to come up with other solutions to how we could make him not die. And that would also make sense in the context of the story. That Mm -hmm. was like one large chunk of fan fiction. And I got eventually so mad at the game that I got into like game modification (laughs) that I learned coding at like the young age of like 17. Amazing. Um, Just to kind of like modify my game and to like Mm. make it not be like that. So it's like funny because when you think about how like the world in the game is ultimately made out of graphics and lines of code. Me, by doing that, like, kind of, to me, it feels like the ultimate way of, like, manipulating um, manipulating fate for the characters that I care a lot about. And yeah. that sense of feeling, that sense of control, that sense of, oh, okay, now I'm finally winning over you and struggling away from this tragedy, um, I think, just to me, doing game mods is definitely a lot more rewarding than writing fan fiction. So right. that kind of really reshaped my whole relationship with RPG games in general. Once I discovered that you can actually like do game mods and really just forcefully inject yourself and change whatever is in that world. So mm. I know this might be carrying myself away from our actual <laughs> top, but just wanted to like mention that. No, I think that all the best podcasts, uh, discussions do that they go on tangents just like all the best school teachers go on tangents so when, when you said you were like getting into coding as a means to an end on your strange mm-hmm. teenage missions i can tell you a story where i did something similar and i think i can bring yeah. this back to to uh, literature so i i i guess I, i'm 27 i i'm not i think we're roughly of an age when i started high school ipods hadn't completely taken over the world of mp3 players and mp3 players mm-hmm. hadn't been replaced by phones and being a kind of a contrarian kid well from when i was a kid i didn't want to get an iphone uh, an i an ipod so i had a mp3 player um i i became attached to this company called creative who made these mp3 players called creative zens and the mm-hmm. second creative zen i had um it had a very nice interface the font it used was a nice thin font but i remember i was god knows how i fell down this um internet wormhole but i found it was possible to i think yeah i because you could change the theme but there were only six Mm -hmm. themes and i thought surely there's more spaces in this menu in theory you could get more themes maybe you can uh, download some from the zen website and i think there were none you could download but people had made their own so you could get them onto the machine but you had to mod it so you had to get Mm -hmm. very like user unfriendly software you had to get xml files you had to reset the firmware all the stuff i'd never done before but i taught Mm -hmm. it and i what i did i got to do out of that was add some themes change like the booting screen little animation that plays when you turn it on and change the fonts so um i some of the changes i made were kind of tasteful but 
one totally not tasteful thing I did was I replaced that nice thin sans serif font with a font called Bleeding Cowboys, which was like <laughs> a completely ornamental, like emo, heavy metal sort of font. And this is where I'm going to try and link it back to fan fiction because it's like changing it to this crazy font is an idea that's like cool in theory and at a superficial level, but at some deeper level, it kind of goes against the harmony of the structure of the whole thing it's better to have a minimalist font than this flashy one mm-hmm. and I feel like when I've been tempted to write fan fiction or when I've looked at fan fiction that I guess usually kids have written they're trying to do things with the story that at first impulse you'd really want to do but the writer hasn't done because they don't work and I feel like that's probably why a lot of okay here's an example um the BBC show Sherlock, where they were... Oh, my God. I was so into that fandom when I was, like, a teacher. Yeah. Right. And I think it had such, like, a fan fiction fandom thing because they were constantly Mm -hmm. teasing some kind of a relationship between Holmes and Watson. But, of course, the whole point is that it's all teasing. And if they actualized it, the whole thing's ruined. But that's where kind of fan fiction comes in. You can... Mm -hmm. Because it's, like, a lesser, sillier form, it's fine to break the rules and eat the whole box of chocolates, if you know what I mean. Right, right. No, I, I completely feel you because um, I know that Guzian in China, all three games have like a very strong um, fan fiction community. And um, I think it's, it's exactly because these games have such well-built worlds and have left enough kind of empty spaces in between for people to be like, let me follow my favorite character and write a story for them. And I think this, um, the structure of these games give you just the right amount of freedom to while kind of being in a general structure um, and having the safety of having like a very established world for you to explore. Um, on the other hand, it doesn't kind of quote unquote, like kill the story. Like the story isn't set in stone. There's a lot of spaces left for people to just fill in whatever they want to fill in. And I think even just the minor characters have a lot of potential to be explored. So I think Wujian really does storytelling like extremely well. And I think people are just very emotional in general regarding the characters in the games um, of all three games in the series. So even though they're very different in graphics, very different in setting, um, the main plot is different. The one thing that doesn't change is that it does amazing world building and also amazing just character building that Mm -hmm. I think people just prize those characters as characters who actually are complex and have their own goals and ambitions and it's very easy to like love a character in the Guzian games compared to like let's say another game where it's mostly just about fighting it's about advancing and not so much about anything else because speaking of storytelling can I just actually go back a little bit to a point that we were trying to make but I remember that I didn't actually finish it. I, I do that all the time. And usually I just <laughs> let it go and regret it weeks later. So yeah, you'd better go for it. <laughs> yeah, because we're talking about, um, uh, I know the word that, I know the word xianxia popped up like a lot during the conversation. And we mentioned maybe like three times already that xianxia gives off a like game vibe inherently. It's interesting because what Gu Jian is doing here is that I see it doing a more traditional sense of storytelling where they focus tremendously on the world, the characters, the plot line, and sometimes like Wuxian One, not so much on gaming itself even. But on the other hand, for a lot of Xianxia stories that are just super long and are like always going and going, 
that's kind of the reverse of what I'm seeing in Gu Jian is that it's a story and it's not a game.、Mm. But the feeling you get in those stories is very similar to the feeling you get in a game where all you do is upgrade. And I know that people, like a lot of people, read Tianxia definitely not for the character or the plot, but simply for the feeling of oh, okay, like I'm following this person, I'm seeing how this person is advancing, is upgrading, is leveling up, and eventually this person becomes like super powerful, and that's the end. So、mm. I wonder if kind of cognitively, psychologically, the enjoyment you get for from reading that kind of Tianxia. Is on par to playing a game where leveling up and killing monsters and gathering treasure is the priority versus Gu Jian, where I think the reason there's so much fan fiction surrounding it and the reason that people just care so much about like things other than gameplay, such as graphics, such as world building, and the reason why like even at our tenth anniversary that happened just now, like so many fans from before they like still come to celebrate, they still are like drawing pictures and. Writing fiction to kind of celebrate that,、um, celebrate this world. Is it because what Gu Jian is doing, its priority is actually close to what we see in a good pop novel?、Mm. So I'm just like had that quick thought about like I guess the different cognitive effects of game playing versus storytelling and、mm-hmm. storytelling games, obviously. Yeah, well, once I've raised enough money、um, through this podcast Patreon, I'll set up like a neurology lab, and we can strap up, you know, with little <laughs> brain signal readers, one person or maybe a control group, one control group reading Xianxia novels, and then another control group playing various RPGs, and then we can see if the brain patterns, the brains light up in the same places, and then we can confirm or deny that theory. God, please do it! I'd be so excited. <laughs> yeah, it would. It would get headlines anyway. So we've talked quite a lot about heroes and heroic journeys.、Uh, you have mentioned boss fights a few times, which is cool because it's probably not going to be quite so deep. We'll see. But I'd like to ask you a wee bit about the monsters and the villains of the、yeah. Gujian games, Gujian world. Because at least when I was playing Gujian three, I've fought fought three bosses myself and saw some others、uh, on videos on YouTube. It felt like they were quite modern. Like they felt like they were from a more kind of international, not homogenized is is a negative word, but they felt like they could have come from like gothic horror,、mm. gaming, pop culture, and that kind of like that milo milu, however you say that French word I just described, has a lot of incra- <laughs> influence from、uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraftian stuff.、Mm. Like right, right. Know, Lovecraftian monsters in games and movies are probably a, they're pretty much a separate thing from actual horrors in Lovecraft stories. I feel like they've kind of split off like a cell and evolved in their own direction.、Um, like to give you an idea, what I'm I'm, I'm talking about.、Um, yeah. There's when you start off Gujian three, you're playing as the main character's brother, so it's an interesting.、Yeah. It's kind of like I don't know. I'm sure I played other games that do this. I can't think of any, but you start off Assassin's f- Creed. I think one of the Assassin's Creed games. Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yes.、Um, I've never played that. But I watched my sibling play it. But yeah, you you start off with all the powers and level fully leveled up. So you get a glimpse of what you can be, essentially. So it throws、mm-hmm. you into the fantasy world. You are incredibly strong, which is great because you easily beat the monsters the game throws at you. But then I was, I got kind of like really freaked out because it throws you up against a massive, like a city-sized 
demon. Oh I, I was going to refer to that. Oh my God. Like, yeah. It's that that was to. very Lovecraft. Like mm. the one with like a lot of, um, I think a lot of like tornado like tentacles coming out. That yep. one. Tentacles, oh eyes. He's like half, yeah. he's half boulder, half turtle. He's like really dark purple color. He's coming through a portal to destroy <laughs> the whole dimension. Um, so like, I don't know, that feels to me like pop culture Lovecraft rather than weird fiction eerie Lovecraft but like yeah the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is it felt like, like like it was coming from you could call it western culture I think it'd be more sensible to say like it's just like world pop right. culture modern modern stuff basically so why since since you know more about the games I'm wondering is that what all the the monsters and villains are like or are any of them a little bit more like quote-unquote uh, traditional and Chinese I think this one um very good point because I also feel like this happened specifically in Guzian 3. Mm. Um, and I think part of the reason is that the game makers are prepared to put Guzian 3 out into the world. And that's obviously why they only had that one translated and it's on Steam. So mm. I think while they made the game, the ambition was to make this quote unquote more international than before. So I don't know exactly if this is behind the motivation of let's say making Sky Elk City the way it is, or incorporating more kind of classical Western RPG game monsters. Mm. Um, but I can definitely see that being a source of inspiration because this doesn't happen in the first two games. Like we mentioned just now, the monster in the beginning of Guzian 3 really just screams like Western RPG at me when I saw it. And I'm just like, wow, what am I even playing? Like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> um, right. For Guzian 1, at least, um, which I think is the one that they tried hardest to get close to Chinese culture. Yeah, almost all the monsters are based on some kind of creature from mythology that they're properly named. They have like references and there's like backstories. And um, oh, also because in all the Gujian games, you have like a monster glossary as well. That oh, yeah. whoever, like, fight, you can collect their like glossary item and you kind of know what they are. Mm. And I remember pretty clearly that in Gujian 1, the monsters are all like, very mythological and also like some historical and some are just like people to me that also was a very strong like element of their overall let's do traditional culture sense um versus Scootian 3 I think the monsters got more sloppy that it's more kind of like creative all over the place and also especially put under the setting that the sky of people are guarding the kind of the portal to the demon realm. So their job is to fight demons like all the time. And once you like see what the demons are, you realize that the demons who are kind of like climbing out of that portal, like the one we mentioned just now, the big eye purple black thing, like it's obviously no longer kind of a part of mythology. Even though like I personally think it could still be, but that's kind of the game maker's decision. Maybe they just wanted to try a different kind of aesthetic. So that's kind of what I've been seeing. Um, but I think as you approach the latter bits of Guzian 3, you see that the monsters they're fighting are no longer monsters, but more or less like actual people, like other characters involved in the storyline. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where it gets more interesting because I think approaching the latter bits of Guzian 3, that's where the whole team eventually kind of gets in touch with 
super like ancient mythological history. Like, um, so for example, one person joins their group, and you later on realize that this person is a reincarnation of, like, basically the father of all men in Chinese mythology, um, who like actually mm-hmm. exists. And so, um, as he joins the main story plot, um, the story kind of takes a turn and begins to be more about kind of like history and even just like tracing like all the way tracing up to like where your ancestors were it kind of became all about that instead of the sky of people so i think Gujian 3 really kind of comes in different segments and the vibe is different um with every like city you get to and with every person who like comes to join you mm. so i think that the whole sense of like is this lovecraft is is this like more Western gets diluted a lot when you approach kind of the ending bits um, of the story. Right. Um, you mentioned cities and that's reminding me. So earlier you, you talked about how um, Gujiento was a really, um, it was, they had a really interesting representation and use of Chang'an. Um, mm-hmm. Do any of the Gujian games use any other historical Chinese cities as settings like specifically or is, or, is that the only one that they've really tried to bring into the game? Well, actually, all the cities in Guzian are based in, um, on cities in reality. Mm. So they actually don't have fictional cities at all, except for, like, obviously, like Sky Elk, which is right. kind of not a part of the mortal world. But every city that's in the mortal world is based on a real place. And they try to kind of, like, make it as close to history as possible. Mm. So um, I think what's interesting is that they would get into these ridiculously neat, details that they drew from history and ancient books and you're just kind of like wow like they really didn't have to do that to make <laughs> the game work but they did so i think for example um in guzian 3 you would enter this like huge city forgot the name but i think it's the first kind of like major like large mortal city after you finish all of the sky elk drama in the beginning um and in that city it's called the city of flowers and everyone kind of makes like dye paint based on the flowers that grow around the city. And you actually can like just walk around and visit all those like places with like huge like buckets of paint just resting there or mm. just people drying out the newly dyed clothing. And this like adds nothing to the game, but it's just like pretty. And yeah. you can like talk like people who are working in the factories and get to know a lot about how the city is like historically and how it gained its name and why paint is important and different kinds of flowers and herbs that are put into paint. You just get a lot of like, I guess, useless knowledge, but it's cool anyways. Mm. Um, And the other thing that they do is that I think now I'm getting more into the cultural aspect, but um, I know that I mentioned this many times that Gujian is like very big on getting the cultural and historical details right, that it kind of sees educating game players and not like, I wouldn't say promoting Chinese culture, but kind of like incorporating Chinese culture as one of its game making missions. Yeah. And they do more so than all of the other games I've seen that obviously focus more on just the game playing or kind of the story itself. But Guzian really cares a lot about that. And um, I think another branch I want to go off um, into is the voiceover. Um, I think you might have realized that while you're playing, the characters actually like speak and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Gujian uh, pays a lot of attention to voice actors. And the really interesting part is that in different cities and that are, because the cities are historically based on cities in different places of China and they have dialects. So 
um, sometimes they would get like voice actors to even do voiceovers for main like major NPCs of every city, and they would purposely get people from those regions of China to do the voiceover in their local dialect to make it even more realistic. That's really cool.、Mm-hmm. The, the city with all the paint. Which、mm-hmm. historical city is that based on? Do you know?、Um, right now, I don't remember. It's just、right. kind of like something. This example just came to my mind. Okay.、Uh, definitely look it up later, but because Guojian Three is set in like a time period that's, I think it's supposed to be like earlier, just like quite early in general.、Mm. So it's、um, not like a city that we would be kind of casually just familiar with. Right. And I think they mostly took inspiration from like the older history texts. Okay, I got you. So、yeah. because the story plot. Towards the end is all about like super like ancient mythological people, and it's no longer like Guojian Two, let's say, which is more about like oh Tang Dynasty, the emperor.、Mm. So I think to get that vibe, they really kind of dug into not just history but mythology and just a lot of like oh like human origin stories of China kind of things to get the vibe right. Right. Yeah, this was something.、Um, well, something that interested me when、um, I did my first little bit of learning about Chinese history is、um, that, like, the different eras.、Uh, of course, like any time something is happening in history in one part of the world, other things are happening in other parts of the world. So when I was watching、uh, Legend of the Demon Cat, was it Yao Mao?、Yeah. I forgot the Chinese name. Yao Mao Zhuan. Yao Mao Zhuan. Yes, Yao Mao Zhuan.、Um, That set, like we were saying, in, in the Tang Dynasty, and I was watching it with my girlfriend, who's just finished her own、uh, PhD in、uh, Anglo-Saxon and Norse literature. So she knows a fair bit about that period of history in mostly in England and a little bit like in、uh, Denmark and and whatnot.、Mm-hmm. But、um, she asked me, like, wait, when is this? Because、um, I told her a little bit about the Tang Dynasty, like why. I was like, here's why they're trying to make it visually look so nice. And, Because the Tang Dynasty and Chang'an were so important, blah 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 blah. And she said,、mm-hmm. "When was that?" And I told her like something like the 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 seven seven hundred AD or、mm. thereabouts. And she said, "Oh, wait a minute! What? This was happening at the same time that the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were in England." And I was like,、mm-hmm. "Yes, but yeah,、um, it's not like she wouldn't have realized that, or she, it's not like she would have thought that would be impossible. But it's just."、Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like when I was learning about, I don't know, when I learned how massively important Chang'an was. I'd、mm-hmm. never put it against like parallel historical contexts.、Um, I had a similar experience. My last year of high school, we did a school exchange、uh, to Japan, and we、mm-hmm. went to not one of the places we went was Nara. We saw the giant、right. there, and、uh, I guess they had they they dated what year that it was built. It was something like a thousand thousand AD. But it was just light years ahead of anything that would have been happening in in Scotland,、uh, my own country at that time, and it's just a bit of a mind blower.、Um, it was a mind blower for me anyway. So yeah, the the point I'm getting to here is that if I was playing these games, I wouldn't necessarily be able to place what time a setting was drawing on based on like、mm-hmm. the characters' costumes or the architecture. Even with the knowledge of China I have now, I wouldn't really be able to tell the different ones apart. As I、right. would be able to, like, if it was set in、um, the British Isles or even medieval Europe or the Mediterranean, I could probably place it 
reasonably well based on mm-hmm. the costumes and the settings. So would Chinese gamers, <laughs> interesting phrase, would, would Chinese gamers, if they saw the settings in Gujian 3, would they know it was like early China? Some, like when you're saying the founding of China or the early China, would that be like the Zhou dynasty around then or even earlier than that? I think probably even, even earlier than that. So right. more like the mythological ages mm. where kind of like human activity first started. But our story is not necessarily kind of dated all the way like that back, but you can certainly tell that it's based more or less in a just earlier time period in general. Right. And what are the like visual cues that would help you pick up on that? Um, I think one important thing is that in a lot of the cities, the houses are less like fancy. Mm. That um, I think they're just very earthly. Um, I think you can see more, let's say, clay pots lying everywhere. You can see kind of like totems and things that cue at how the setting is more or less kind of all the way back in the mythological ages. And, and also right. I did and looked up the city name. It's called Yanling, the city of like flower and paint. Cool. I'll try um, and uh, put that in the show notes for listeners as well. What, how, how would I spell that in pinyin? Is it Y-A-N-L-I-N-G? Yanling? Exactly. You got it. Okay, so cool. um, I think uh, conti- uh, continuing what we said before, I think another important thing for at least the Chinese gamers is the name of the cities. Because I guess like names of a lot of Chinese cities don't change that much over time. So Yanling as a city still exists nowadays. Right. Um, in Hunan. And so see that city, it's in Henan. Henan, So right. And I, I guess for someone who's familiar with Chinese mythology and culture, when you see that this place is in Henan, you're just kind of like, oh, I see what you're doing. Because I guess the common knowledge is that Henan is the place where I guess the first, like, the mythologies happened. And people mm. say that kind of the ancestors, like the, uh, like, I think some translations call it the, the quote unquote, the yellow emperor. Um, yep. So he's from Henan. So uh, that's where right. the tomb was found and all of that. So Henan has always been prided as kind of the origin, the place where the tombs were, the ancestors were. So once we see that, oh, like these cities are obviously in Hunan or around that location. We know what's kind of going on. We right. know that like, we, we know that the story is going to be somewhat about that age of mythology um, compared to anything else. So definitely I think geography and location and names as labels is kind of one direction pointing thing um, that helps at least the Chinese gamers identify the historical period and kind of like synthesizing what they see visually with what they know about history. And it's interesting because I think drawing um, the conversation a little bit back to Chang'an, um, not just me, but actually one of my friends, um, and she has this like little brother who's growing up and just learning history. And he like wasn't really interested, but she like pulled up the game and kind of like sat him next to the game and showed him that like, oh, look, this is Chang'an. And because the city in Guzian is actually vaguely well pretty accurately based on like a Chang'an map which is very square you have all the major streets Mm. um the markets are in the right places so she kind of just gave him a tour of the city um (laughs) in the game and he's like oh okay now I can conceptualize like now I know what this is all about which is cool so um the point I was gonna make was that right like because you talked you mentioned the realization of like oh wow like this happened this year 
but it's so mm. hard to connect what's happening in let's say country a with what's happening in country b yeah um especially if you're less familiar with the history and culture of one of the countries um and i think the one major thing that guzian does which is also i guess like a main theme that i keep on coming back to is how much guzian and not just guzian but games in general just visual world buildings in games in movies how much that helps us see and imagine things that previously would have seemed strange or unfamiliar yeah yeah um i know i keep going back to that uh, game fable but it does mm-hmm. also, so many times we've been talking about gujian and there's something similar that fable does so one of the things names like i said earlier it has the name albion is that's an old pre i guess pre-roman name for the british isles so it's clearly cluing you in where you're in a fantasy version of another thing that makes it similar to gujian is that a lot of the monsters in fact i think all the monsters mm-hmm. are some kind of a version of a creature from either british but more generally european mythology and one of them mm-hmm. Or hobs who are these little gnome-like horrible little monsters that although they're quite mm-hmm. small they cause you all sorts of trouble and that's how i learned about hobs i, I didn't know if, if if someone had asked me prior to that what's a hob i would have said oh it's a thing that you uh, cook food on and then they would say no what is the hob for mythology and i would have said what on earth are you talking about but because i played this game when i was about 13 <laughs> i have mm-hmm. an idea um so yeah it's cool that your your friends did you say it was your friend's younger brother yeah yeah, it's cool that he got to enjoy that. And it's great that um, video games look sufficiently immersive now that he could get, like, it can serve as well as just an adventure game, like you were saying, like a, a virtual tour of Chang'an. That's, that's right. really cool. It's something I wouldn't like, have got of... at his age on my Game Boy, if you know what I mean. I, I know, I know. It's like you kind of get the, I guess, the the juice of being able to like, kind of explore and talk to people and discover things on your own in this game. Mm. Like... If you kind of cut out the actual plot line and you just kind of place people in the city and have them walk around, it's already like pretty, pretty like purely educational on its own from just having the privilege of interacting, of having that kind of like feeling of you yourself is controlling like the mouse or whatever, than to just sit in a classroom setting or even just look at a documentary. Like it's a completely different way of learning and engaging mm. your brain and body so i think this really brings a lot of potential to game as a kind of media for not just telling stories but also transmitting culture and providing educational value yeah um the next set of questions i've got are all kind of uh, technical ones i think mm-hmm. i might jump ahead to one based on what you just said about yeah. uh, cultural exchange so a big reason why i do the podcast is because of cultural exchange like the kind of crass very crass way of looking at it i have is we're, we're living in a time where there is a lot of tension maybe not between ordinary people but between the people in charge of china and the people unfortunately um a lot of the people in charge of the western world are not acting with great intentions some of them are but you know we're, we're living in in rather fraught times so I like to think cultural exchange is one thing that should help us uh, not blow each other up. And I guess I really had that thought when I was I was listening to a BBC radio show about um, the kind of cooling of tensions at the end of the Cold War. And there was some kind of TV show where 
they had brought is such a stupid, simple thing, but they had brought together some ordinary people from Soviet Russia and from like England or something. And they're like, oh yeah, these people do similar stuff to me. They have similar concerns. And Mm -hmm. it seems so silly in some ways, but in other ways you're like, yeah, well, if they're, although in theory we could easily reach out into other cultures and enjoy them, our default Mm -hmm. mode is just to go to the things that consumerism feeds us or to go to what we're most familiar with. So yeah, that's, I think, a really cool thing about the fact that literature can be translated. You can read me, an English speaker, or someone, maybe a better example is like my friends mm-hmm. who liked to read books, but have no connection with, you know, country A, B, or C, be it China or some other country. They can go and read a book that's popular in that country if it's translated into English. So like literature as a cultural vector, is it's great. I think it's fantastic. Um, Video games, though, you know, another maybe sad thing about the age we live in is less people read and more people Mm -hmm. enjoy more immediate media, let's say, media that throws you in with less, maybe less effort sounds too judgmental, but it's much easier to get thrown into a movie or a video game than it is a a book. A book, you need a little bit of focus, a little bit of peace and quiet, a game you don't. So I I have a 13 year old sister and it's very easy to get her on her phone it's easy to get her to read a fan fiction based on tv shows that she watches (laughs) online on wattpad it's almost impossible to get her to read a book so yeah do you think here's the question after minutes of preambling about high and mighty (laughs) ideas about world peace um do you think there's a lot of as yet untapped potential in bringing games like gujian into English because I guess it's another maybe a not so great thing about translation is it can be unidirectional or the flow it's a little bit like a trade imbalance in a way Mm -hmm. stuff flows out of English into other languages and other cultures at a much greater level than stuff flows into English Uh, so as an English speaker it's very easy to be in a bubble there are lots of I'm sure there are lots of games made in the English speaking world that you can play in China not Mm -hmm. so much in the other direction with the exception of maybe mobile apps which lots of mobile apps made in China aren't trying to sell people on you know Chinese culture I've got one that Mm -hmm. is called animal uh, animal restaurant which is um oh it's have you heard of that one no I'll have to talk about that later it's a fantastic game and it's um, okay. available in uh, Chinese, well, simplified and traditional Chinese, English, and then some like um, Southeast Asian languages as well. I think a lot of people who play it are from like Vietnam and stuff. But yeah, <laughs> um, the question, sorry, I keep getting distracted. Do you think <laughs> no, no, no. games like Gujian could blow up or find an audience in the English speaking world? And if it does, do you think it would be people in the Chinese diaspora or do you think it could really go like international with people who have no connection with china because i guess wuxia to some extent in cinema is a little bit of a success story um Mm -hmm. wuxia literature maybe not yet but with the translation Mm -hmm. of kondo heroes maybe but what about gujian so i think i also have a lot that i want to say um regarding this topic um Mm. is i think first of all yay to games saving the world, bringing world peace. I'm like totally for that. Of course. Um, And especially at a time like now, like we all know that the world is becoming more and more, unfortunately, sad. (laughs) And And angry. It's becoming more angry. Mm -hmm. And um, like, I think as someone who has spent a lot of time in America and China, like the current situation is horrible. So I won't go into that. It just will get sadder from here. So I'll stop myself before Um, I get carried away, but 
the main point here is that um, in a lot of my previous talks about translation, I keep on mentioning one thing is that a lot of translators like myself who do Chinese to English translations are very hesitant in upon taking taking up um, projects that address Chinese mythology or kind of classical slash ancient um, elements mm. because of sheer difficulty is that when you try to illustrate a myth from Chinese into English, you do realize that there is no such equivalence. There is no base for you to draw inspiration from. Yeah. So it's kind of like you have to recreate all of that from scratch in your translation. And in literature, that often becomes very hard work because let's say if you have a short story and this person bases the story on some kind of mythology, then does that mean the translator has to take pages and lots of footnotes to explain the mythology itself before the story can even begin? Like it just becomes very hard. And um, and I think to be frank here is that, um, like you said just now, people in China now, we grew up um, reading like Greek myth or Christian myth or just things that people um, in the Western world also know. Yeah. But it's definitely not the same the other way around. That if you mention, even even just now talking in this podcast, like when I say, let's say, Yellow Emperor, or if I address like the um, the kind of monster, the, the guardian monster that the Sky Elks are based on, I still have to go through a lot of effort trying to explain myself and find the right vocabulary because there really is no such glossary present in English for me to really just draw upon immediately and be like, oh, like, like, Let's say if I say Zeus, we'll all know that Zeus is Zeus. But when I say Sky Elk or Yellow Emperor, even though it's very common in Chinese culture, there is no such equivalence. It's not mm. even just on a linguistic level, but it's really just like cognitively that concept doesn't exist. And to people who, I guess, like even like a lot of my, let's say my American friends, sorry for picking on them, but like like you said, they do live in some kind of like an English bubble where yeah, works the bubble within the bubble. <laughs> Right. It's kind of like um, works of works of translation just does not exist um, on their bookshelves. Like they do not feel the need to read beyond English or even read beyond America, really. So in this context, especially being aware of this context as a translator who's working like I mean, I think I'm in this more or less unique position where I work both ways that translating from English into Chinese is definitely a lot easier than translating from Chinese into English because for the former, I can just translate things as it is. I don't necessarily have to add in a ton of footnotes to explain the story. Um, I can address like myth and God names and references. And I know that my target audience in China will be okay with it because that's what we all grew up reading as children, that it's already been so ingrained um, into our everyday culture and our vocabulary. But once you switch it around, it's not even just about making the stories and the characters and the myth available um, linguistically, but to really just capture people's interests and not to make them feel like, oh, wow, I open up this story and immediately on the first page, it's about a myth I have no idea about and I don't want to care about it, so let me just throw it away. Mm. So I know it sounds really cruel, but I think that's what we're facing right now, especially in the pop culture world, is that the general, the general average, I guess, like, English reader in a bubble, they're very used to kind of being in a self-sufficient cultural sphere where mostly they're reading stuff that's written English yeah. and even get them to start caring about a peripheral 
culture, language, or voice like Chinese, let's say, um, especially pop culture, is already kind of hard to begin with. Yeah. And you have to kind of capture the balance of not butchering your culture and the author's intent and mythologies into kind of shortened, chopped up versions of blatant Orientalism to capture the eye. You have to balance that versus not making things look extremely unfamiliar and boring and academic to turn people away. Mm -hmm. So it's always been a struggle for translators to capture that balance, especially regarding stories that draw upon Chinese mythology and culture, like classical culture. But um, I know that that was a lot of talk, but bring this back, um, that was talking about translating literature. But to me, I think in a more positive sense, I think games can actually achieve that a lot more easily. Um, I know even even though there are not enough games um, that Chinese people have made, that has been translated into English. And I know Gudian 3 has just kind of come out still quite, recent, um, still quite recently, and it's kind of like a baby step. Um, but I do see like a bigger potential for culture exchange coming from the realm of games, because for games, you actually overcome this sense of like, oh, what if this long passage of description turns people away? That the myth, the culture, it's already embedded in the visuals that even someone who have no idea of what Chang'an City is like culturally, they can still play the game and be like, oh, okay, this is just this one big main city I'm exploring. And whatever I see um, in this game will be my first encounter with what Chang'an means symbolically. Mm. So the inherent kind of like visual aspect, you don't really have to like, interact with words that much is already kind of a great advantage for games to being accepted by people who don't necessarily know the culture. So yeah. um, I think that really compensates for the one like big source of headache for translators um, upon translating literature is the lines and lines of descriptions and whether that would kind of capture people's attention. But in games, you can kind of just like not really give a shit and put things down and it's more the visuals and the interactions that would keep people hooked and the translator of the game doesn't have to, to work on that anymore. So it's actually, I think, to some extent easier, I would say, that if I imagine myself translating Gu Jian, I'd be a lot more relieved. I could just kind of like directly translate um, the terms, um, the glossaries into more kind of accurate, more just academic dictionary-like ways and like mm -hmm. Wikipedia pages and slap them into the glossary slot because that's, obviously where you go to read about um, the cultural references and not having to worry so much about keeping the balance between, oh, how can I portray this? How can I approach this? How can I explain this myth um, while kind of preserving its essence and also not making it seem too boring? So that doesn't exist anymore. Like mm. I hope I made sense just now. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, when I being in China myself, dealing with um, the the language that I speak, English, and the language environment I was in Chinese. Uh, so I was a, a foreign teacher, basically, and especially in my first year, I was there to teach English to kids who were learning it for the first time. And the like absolute um, teaching language for dummies um, lesson I was taught when I did my TEFL courses preparation, the, the teacher said, okay, I'm going to teach you a concept. The concept is called realia. You should always try to use realia in your classes. And all that meant was if you want to teach a word, 
bring in like an object bring in mm. the actual object so like the fastest way to teach kids what the word for apple is in english is to bring an apple show them an apple point at it and say apple right. just visualize it so yeah what you're saying about how if you want uh, um someone who's never heard of chang'an to get a grasp of chang'an we could talk about it on a podcast for hours but mm-hmm. that's not it's going to be slower and not as effective as throwing them into you know a visual of, of chang'an a picture says a thousand words or or a real 3d thing says even more than a picture i suppose you could say so that's the thing about being a teacher the thing about being just a, a foreigner who spoke mm-hmm. a different language living there um so one of the more amusing things about like the the lawai life being a foreigner in china was that unless you were hanging out with some real idiots who had no interest in learning anything about the country they come to live in some new words would enter your vocabulary and they would mostly be loan words so uh, to think of a few like well lawa is one the word for foreigner uh, <laughs> shufu maybe um right. ie if you were interacting with the like the janitors in the school you worked at uh, and there's lots and lots more obviously but the, the the fun thing was like english one good thing about english one open thing about english is that it takes mm-hmm. in lots of words from other languages it's quite flexible in that way and mm-hmm. a thing i was thinking about as a language learner or someone trying to deal with maybe not a lang- like a cultural learner trying to get my head around chinese things and concepts was um how few words from chinese culture exist as loan words in english like off the top of my head uh, there's feng shui and then names of various martial arts although those are mostly those mostly exist in english as um i think cantonese rather than mandarin that most of uh, the, mm, the chinese right, nation right. speaks um i remember being drawn back to this thought when i was reading ken liu's translation of um waste tide by chen chiu fan which oh, i covered on, right. on the show with uh, Stan Stanley Chen as a guest mm-hmm. but as I was reading it I was thinking gosh Ken's gone out of his way here to use lots of loan words from lots of regional languages so in waste tide there are mandarin words alongside the english um but there are also cantonese words there's one or two japanese words and i felt like maybe he had he was making an effort to set the the mandarin pinyin words alongside those other uh regional words and i know that um i think it was either himself or or chen Fan had talked about new um words from mandarin entering english in their pinyin spellings like shanjai which is, seems a little bit optimistic shanjai uh, you can read articles about what that word means and if you're in the know you know what it means but if that word is going to end up in english it's still on the way probably like a lot of other words from Mandarin. It made me, when I think about that, I think about Japanese and just how many, how successfully so many Japanese words exist in English. In fact, like there are words, translate. I've seen translators use Japanese words to explain Chinese concepts because mm-hmm. like um, one that really surprised me um, living in China uh, was I saw these little, you know, the little miniature trees that mm-hmm. uh, as a Westerner oh, called right. bonsai, I would call it. And right, I was right. the, uh, a Chinese uh, Chinese person and I said oh look it's a bonsai tree it's a Japanese thing and my Chinese friend was like what that is Chinese tradition it's and I'm I'm sorry but I I don't remember the Chinese word it's still I learned it for a while but bonsai is still what that word means in my head Um, so yeah I guess if there's a question there it's do you think there's hope for a future where more Chinese loan words exist in English 
or do you think there's a long way to go before it can be success as successful as Japanese in that regard? Um, I think that's a really just really good point in general. Um, the example I was going to give was the word senpai in Japanese, mm. because even just in my college, which is like American college, um, people are already addressing each other as like senpai or like kohai. And when that word comes out, like no one seems to feel like it's a problem at all, that right. it kind of like captures the feeling of someone who's in your same institution and yet is a few years older than you. So it kind of has that siblinghood feeling to it and yet you can't like it's different from actually calling someone sister so right. um definitely i think the word senpai alongside with all of its cognitive references of how this kind of specific um i guess like school culture in japan that it's pointing to um is mapped onto this word senpai and this word in turn gets into english vocab and the concept behind it enters the whole kind of like general English speaker cognition as well. So it's just interesting generally to think about how words enter different languages, not as merely like linguistic constructions, but how they actually come with underlying cognitive um, packages of information. Um, I think as of now, as a translator, um, I know that there's still like a very long way to go before Chinese pinyin can enter English, which is inherently a very flexible language um, that can kind of adopt a, um, a lot of different sorts of, of, of influences. But I do hope to see that kind of happen in the future. And mm. I think um, one of the great jobs that translators and I think especially shout out to Ken here, what he's doing in not just his translations, but his original writing is that he keeps on pushing the boundaries of what it means to use language, what it means to use English. And um, I definitely see him doing this kind of throughout his just career in general, really. Um, sometimes he would just use pinyin directly, like we see in Waste Tide, um, and explaining the concept um, that comes with that pinyin while he's translating. So to kind of establish that um, in the context of the story to make it work. On the other hand, um, I think these kind of um, how, I guess, foreign languages can come into your main language and modify it. This doesn't just happen on the word level, but also on, let's say, idioms and metaphors. Mm -hmm. And if we want to talk bigger, also large chunks of narratives and mythologies. These all can happen. And I think one thing that Ken also does is that when he's writing and when he's translating, sometimes he would just preserve the original Chinese, like we say, um, we say cheng yu. So it's kind of like established um, phrase of wording that points to a certain meaning. And often they come in shapes of metaphor. So for example, um, I remember clearly that in Ken's um, book, uh, The Grace of Kings, there's one description describing, um, there's one description describing how one character is willing to basically be loyal and protect his friend. And the way he described was that the protagonist said to his friend that, oh, okay, like I'm willing to stick knives in between my ribs to protect you. And that's actually a direct translation of a very common Chinese metaphor. Um, the Chinese is liang lei cha dao, which means what I said just now, to stick knives in between your ribs for your friends. And that's like um, an established phrase to describe loyalty. And even though this metaphor isn't common in English, I think once he's portrayed it under his given narrative context, it suddenly makes a lot of sense. And you're just kind of like, oh, wow, like 
this metaphor looks and feels so different in English, but it's still working. And I can imagine someone, if someone is interested in kind of looking at the details of his language and picking up these picking up these linguistic、um, kind of、um, creations, they would definitely find inspiration in the way that how translations can expand our existing not just glossary but also our existing repertoire for metaphors and、mm. for figurative language. And I think if we even just open up this idea to going back to Gu Jian again,、um, I guess my hope here is that through having more and more games like this that incorporate history and culture mythology, enter the general world or enter the English-speaking world, which is now we all know it's kind of at the center、um, of the cultural scene of our entire globe. By having this there, perhaps someone who has no idea what Chinese culture slash mythology is like. Through playing this game, in the end, they may still not have read anything about China, but they've learned much about this from the game. That they know that, well, okay, like I know nothing about who, let's say, the Yellow Emperor is or where Yanling is at. But after the game, I now I know that Yanling is a place that does a lot of tie dye, and the Yellow Emperor is a dude that has all these backstories and who I've played in the game, which is kind of. Already an enough starter for the certain person to catch a glimpse of what a culture different from their own can be like, and eventually, if this happens frequent enough, and if people are, I guess, like trying hard enough to make it happen,、um, I think we can dream of the day where different mythologies from different cultures can really all come to melt together through this kind of、um, game, as an especially. Flexible type of media for having this, having first of all visuals, but also the interactive factor. Totally, yeah.、Um, it occurred to me when when you mentioned Grace of Kings,、um, there was something we'd kind of talked about、uh, in the run up, which still hasn't、mm-hmm. come up, and that's a term that Ken Liu coined to.、Um, describe his、uh, series of、uh, fantasy novels, kind of inspired by Chinese history and culture, and and so on. The term is silk punk,、um, so、right. kind of like a spin-on、uh, steampunk. But you had used it to describe, I think, Gujian too. So、right. that's that's really interesting because that's taking a term that, as far as I'm aware, was coined after that game came out, but can be applied to it in a way that makes sense. So describe something that existed before it. So I I've had I found a really good definition that Ken gave of silk punk. Um, but stupidly, I didn't. I don't have it in front of me.、Um, do you think you could succinctly describe what that term means, and then relate it to、uh, how? Well, tell us how it relates to Gujian too.、Um, I think if you take the term apart, you look at the silk and the punk. So if we look at how silk punk comes into the family of like steampunk and cyberpunk, you can see that the silk is kind of like. It refers to the aesthetic that stories or visuals or games、um, that I think can be classified into the silk punk genre are generally things、uh, creations that embodies the central kind of East Asian aesthetic that can be kind of、um, I guess essentialized with the word silk.、Um, mm. Material-wise, there's like silk, bamboo, etc., etc.,、yeah. and how often often these Stories and worlds are based on a lot of like East Asian mythology and culture, so that's the silk part. And the punk part is more interesting because 
I think it essentially describes a, a feeling, a vibe to rebel against what these elements used to be regarded as um, and to give them a new meaning and to use them for your own means. So um, I think that's a very vague way of trying to put silk and punk together. But if I was to use one sentence to describe what it is, I think silk punk means to essentially attribute new meanings to these East Asian aesthetic elements and history and culture. Right. And was it Gujian too, you said, that had some kind of silk Mm -hmm. punk elements? So I think um, to refer to that, it's actually more on the superficial aesthetic side. Um, But uh, I think a large part of Ken's story is how silk punk is tied together with like engineering and like essentially like science fiction, right? Because a lot about science fiction is how the science and the tech um, are created. Mm. Um, And um, the cool thing about Ken's novels and his world building is that he talks a lot about how these seemingly kind of like, um, I guess like, how do I put this? Is that he combines, um, let's say, bamboos and silk of these materials that do not serve necessarily serve the function of let's say generating like large spaceships um or like aircraft sorry not spaceships that's like too modern um Mm. of generating aircraft you would you would not think of those things as materials that could create aircraft but um in ken's books he actually describes in detail how you can basically like make very complex engineering um, and produce very kind of like conceptually just modern and science fiction-y machines with these seemingly unrelated materials. And that's a huge part of his silk punk aesthetic is to um, be able to accomplish that kind of thing. And actually like because of the inherent connection between silk punk as a genre with like science fiction in general, um, out of Gu Jian 1, 2, and 3, I know I'm talking about this because I'm like obviously a science fiction fan, mm. but Gu Jian 2 actually stands out a lot as I see it as inherently a science fiction story, despite it being completely set in a kind of fantastical Tang Dynasty China setting. Um, and the story, without spoiling it too much, is essentially about a person who tried to produce like a real life robot replica of himself using the kind of bamboo and silk and materials we've talked about that's only available, like to, that's available to people in like Tang Dynasty China, the seemingly kind of primitive materials that you would never think of could be like a part of an actual functional robot. And that's the essence of the entire story. And that's where kind of the story plot develops. Mm. So if you kind of take apart the, descriptions you take apart the world setting the story in essence is about like artificial intelligence it's about engineering it's about people kind of trying at the boundaries of um scientific creation of technology and it's that core it's that core of innovation of creativity of the common themes we see in very modern science fiction of morality of creating other life forms it's all of that but kind of put under, like, wrapped up in the skin of very East Asian aesthetics and history. So to me, I think Gu Jian Tu really rings true as a story that embodies the essence of silk punk. Right. Well said. That's, um, I'm, I'm glad that we managed to bring in sci-fi because I think the first time mm-hmm. I saw the name Emily Jin, it was in relation to 
Chinese sci-fi. I think I've read some of your uh, translations up on Clark's World. So I'm, I'm glad that we got to, f- well, I guess we're not really squeezing it in if it's already there in Gujian too, but I'm, I'm glad we managed to touch on some sci-fi there. I know it's whenever I go, the conversation always becomes about sci-fi. It just happens. <laughs> mm. You'd mentioned before that there was AI in, or some kind of some stuff relating to AI in Gujian too. Mm-hmm. And now I know what it is that someone was building kind of like a silk punk uh, robot. And you've reminded me, um, so it's, it's kind of a, you know, self-indulgent holiday story. But um, when I was, uh, I was visiting uh, Japan from from China, I'd gone on a trip up to Dongbei, then Korea, then into Japan. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, I think it was, I found out about this through just TripAdvisor or TravelWiki or something. But in Osaka, there in the Osaka Science Museum, there I think it's a I think it's a replica. I don't think it's the original. But there's this uh, I don't know what you'd call it being thing called uh, Gaku Tensoku. Sorry for anyone who speaks good Japanese who just heard me slaughter this creature's mm-hmm. name. But it's a it's an automaton. I think it was built in the uh 1900s uh oh no 1929 so he's um he's kind of just slightly predates the robot in the film uh, metropolis by fritz lang but it's like kind of like a silk punk do you know do you know the film metropolis have you seen that or do you, can you picture the uh, robot I, from I that not, but I've heard of it. yeah well if any listeners have seen the film metropolis it's like totally like that it's like a silk punk version of a jazz age robot but he's um he's got a great big pen and he's i don't know it's it kind of has to be seen to be understood, but I think it was um doesn't really do that much. But I think when the original was made, it was able to animate like its arms could move, it could move its pen, its eyes could move. But yeah, that was that was what um popped into my head when you described a, mm-hmm. like a silk punk automaton, and I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes for listeners. There was something else I think you know when you you knew you were going to mention something, but you don't remember what it was. That's where I am right now. Uh, Oh yeah, uh, another way to look at silk punk. If 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 I can remember Ken Leo's definition, I think he compared it to steampunk. So steampunk is, I think, steampunk came before cyberpunk. But the idea of steampunk is uh, authors took the steam age of technology. So mm-hmm. I guess not everything steam powered, but so steam train engines, zeppelins, the kind of Victorian slash Victorian era engineering of that time, which was futuristic in its time and they've carried it forward so they've kind of frozen certain aspects of technical technological development and then carried it forward so like a, i guess a, an example of that that made it into like mainstream or even literary culture is the his dark materials books which uh, have a world mm. which is kind of victorian but has their technology has accelerated in some ways but in other ways it's frozen so they have an air travel system that the Victorians didn't, but it's Zeppelin-based. And that wasn't really uh, Philip Pullman's original idea. Uh, that's taken from steampunk. So if I am understanding right in like Ken Leo's books, mm-hmm. maybe he's using it for different reasons, like you described, but um, he's taken Chinese engineering and he's kind of powered it up so it can do amazing things. And I'm, I'm saying this without having read the books. Right. I, I think I think that's a pretty accurate way of describing um, his amazing attempts in his books is that I think like the the reason I find it so entertaining is that he would start from very simple materials without involving at all um, what we kind of see nowadays, like programming or data chips or whatsoever. 
but he nonetheless still uses the essence of like modern science logic, but that um, kind of like basing that on very simple materials that um, are only available in the kind of quote unquote frozen time period. And you kind of like see how that's there and how it's um, kind of leveling up and eventually it reaches the realm of not just kind of like simple engineering of making a machine or making like a car or making like an aircraft, but essentially it gets into the whole realm of like, let's say like artificial intelligence and you see that happening and it's just a joy in its own to see how him or other silk punk writers describe this, the process of leveling up even. Um, you're kind of just, they're witnessing their creativity in describing how those materials following that logic could possibly be combined together to make what we see today as very advanced kind of modern cutting edge technology. So yeah. I guess that's the fun part, the, the fun part of the science of silk punk. And that's also exactly what happens in Gu Jian 2 is that the protagonist, um, his entire storyline, that versus the making of kind of like the automaton is kind of like, the core of Gu Jian Tu's like silk punk feeling mm. is that we have a essentially like we have this nerd figure who is obsessed with engineering and is obsessed with how could he like combine more materials into making more advanced technology. So you kind of usually see that kind of um, you, well usually kind of see that figure in let's say like a lot of like classic science fiction. You always get kind of the mad scientist. You get that like trope. Um, like you get like the protagonist of um, science fiction is, is often the person who's like making all these horrible machines and technology and you rarely get the same kind of people appear in um, a story that's set in ancient China um, mm. but who does that so to me it especially feels just nice and familiar is that I think it does a great job in combining two of my favorite things together that you both have the kind of traditional wuxia narrative. You have the world that's filled with history and mythology of China that plus a character or a kind of like narrative core that embodies the essence of really fun science fiction where people actually care about how technology is made. And it's even more fun to see it limited to that historical period. And this isn't anything specific to uh, China. I'm sure this applies to just the the mad scientists of world history. But I think I find mm-hmm. cool about the, that silk, like the punk part of silk punk, steampunk, is that these kind of things have existed in the real world. There has been, I can think of a few examples myself where someone has dreamed up a technology or made an mm-hmm. early form of a technology which didn't take off for in, until far far later in the future like um so i guess the the most famous example is all the various machines leonardo da vinci dreamed up i mean i don't know how many of those are falsely attributed and how many are real but like when you look into that it's mm-hmm. it's crazy just how many things he kind of predicted or or like i know one of them was the tank and um and if you if you read war of the worlds uh and hg wells sci-fi book that the the machines the aliens travel in things that move faster and beat artillery they in a way were tanks and one of the weapons they have at their disposal is a gas that like poisons people basically so okay this is a bit of a horrible dark example but 
I guess those are an example from real life, an example from fiction of predictions of where military technology was going to go. Or uh, I had another example. Oh yeah, yeah. This is a bit of, a bit more of a benign one. Like, mm-hmm. and this relates to um, I, I, I guess technically a character from Chinese sci-fi, um, Alan Turing. I, I say he's from Chinese sci-fi because he's in Shah Jah's story. Um, Good night, oh, yeah. melancholy. <laughs> yeah, sorry if I threw you off there for a second. But yeah, um, yeah. When you start to read about Alan Turing and how he and his colleagues, how early they theorized computers, or how long—well, maybe not, maybe not hundreds of years, but like quite a long time before him—other logicians and mathematicians were theorizing a thinking machine. Mm-hmm. It's it's just it. It's, it's got to be like food for amazing sci-fi or even if it's not food for fiction, it's just excellent food for thought because it's, mm. I guess it's an indication maybe what, and maybe what Ken Leo's saying is that embedded in like some of the very inspired early Chinese engineering were lots of ideas that weren't able to be realized in reality for practical reason A, B, and C, but they're kind right. of already there in some kind of potential imagined form. And I don't, <laughs> I guess this is more of a, just a thing I wanted to say in the question, but the mind boggles the more you think about it, that, you know, very smart people in ancient times, they maybe didn't have the tools we have now, but in their heads, they may have been de- grappling with like completely in an abstract form, things that were going to come into reality long after they passed away. Just, yeah. Right, exactly. Right. That's, that's also something that I'm currently just very into, um, I guess, both as a personal interest and also academically of mm. how they- people from different eras carried out their future imagination and it doesn't always come in the form of concretizing something into reality such as like like you said just now making machines let's say all the way back in Tang China or whatsoever but I think it happens in many different spheres of life such as there's all kinds of philosophy there's all kinds of mysticism there's all kinds of just ways in which you think and imagine and not just the actual tech but also the underlying logic behind that so even just taking taking the example of making automatons i think that concept has existed for thousands of years and people dreamed of it in so many different ways and i guess our language our common way of thinking of that is oh robots or artificial intelligence but the way that people have conceptualized that in the past they may have been getting at the same idea and yet through a different set of vocabulary or recognition. And I think just opening up this discussion to Silk Punk, to what we've been talking all about just now, I think the underlying attraction of Silk Punk as a genre is that it embodies that core, that essence of future thinking, of imagining some very advanced technology of well, and also just imagining what it would be like for those complex imaginations of the future to come true. And yet with that underlying kind of like universal and timeless imagination, you put all of that under a very specific kind of aesthetic setting. And it's kind of like you set a constraint for yourself that, yes, I want to realize this ultimate future imagination, but I can only do so through using whatever's available in this yeah. say time period slash culture at hand so this is what makes the punk more punk even i think it makes it challenging it makes it fun and 
it makes it even more creative. Yeah. Um, speaking of kind of people ahead of their times, and this is jumping the gun on giving you a slot for self-promo. I, kn- mm. I know that you recently brought From English into Chinese. I think it's a, a biography of Philip K. Dick. Um, oh, yes. I remember you told me you're a big fan of PKD. And it seems like mm-hmm. in a lot of the podcasts I listen to, a lot of people want to talk about him, possibly because we're living in very weird times, <laughs> Dickian times, you might say. Um, do you think he's... I don't know if do you think he's he was ahead of his time and in what ways if if, if yes if no then whatever <laughs> <laughs> um certainly certainly um I think when I first started reading him um I think his literature just hit me as something that's very uncanny I would say that I wouldn't really classify him as your typical science fiction writer because I think he's in essence not someone who like let's say dreams about rockets and spaceships and colonizing Mars, like those elements happen in a story. I think mostly they're for the, for the shock value, mm. but in essence, I, I think he sees himself and I see him as a future thinker. So I think he really is conjuring up different versions of often really horrible futures. And to some extent, he's putting himself into the role of this prophet even of speaking of it, of imagining it, of bringing those abstract kind of hellish imaginations into reality by putting them down on paper. And I think the reason why people now are just reading him and worshiping him is because they're starting to realize that a lot of his visions, a lot of the worst possible nightmares he's conjured up in his own writing are gradually kind of happening in our reality. And yeah. I think if we go beyond Philip K. Dick and just looking at science fiction in general, um, one trend that I'm witnessing, especially in the current Chinese science fiction world, is that science fiction and reality are gradually becoming more and more merged together. And um, I'm sure that you've also heard this idea a lot in your oh, interviews yeah. with other people, but even just in waste time. Gentil fun likes to talk right. about that. I know he's like all about the science fiction reality, um, science fiction realism, sorry. But mm. I do see that as a growing and well, it's getting stronger, the trend in, in, in China, um, that people are so unsure about the future. People are so anxious about it. And even just as of now, I'm sitting here in my home, like, I don't know if I can continue my studies in the US. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with the world. I'm just kind of waiting, waiting it out. And every day comes a new future and the sense of uncertainty, the sense of being thrown into the cracks, just as normal person, I also panic about what is there to come. And I think this is why we just turn to science fiction that embraces reality because through looking at the visions of those writers, um, like literally from Philip K. Dick to Stanley Chan, we're looking at the world through their eyes and learning of all the potentially possible that's not even sorry that's like a ground like grammar mistake but you get what i mean like looking at all the mm. possible futures to come um that our heads can't possibly imagine all at once so i think ultimately right now we read science fiction because we want to have a grasp of the future yeah i think the phrase potentially possible just it underlines just how ambiguous and up in the air everything is i know it's just double yeah. ambiguity yeah um i've well, God knows when I'll finish it, but I've been reading bits and bobs of his exegesis, the like the possibly mm. enlightened, possibly crazy um, <laughs> thing he was writing for himself, kind of like a diary. And he was mm-hmm. 
I mean, it, I, who knows how seriously he was taking it, but the big idea of that, if I understand correctly, is that he thinks at some point, well, there's lots of conflicting ideas, but the idea that attracts me most is that at some point, world history just went down a wrong track or the world we're living in is somehow false and maybe through enlightenment there's some ways to if not escape catch glimpses of the 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 better world that we should or could have been in and honestly like um ever since about 2015 16 um i've heard people playing with the idea that we're we're in the wrong timeline something went wrong and like for me um I was sitting in, I think I first got this feeling sitting in um, China where because of the time differences, I was awake when the results from the British EU referendum were, were coming in. Whereas like most people in over in Scotland and England would be asleep. And mm-hmm. I, I, like almost everyone else, I thought, oh, okay, um, the status quo is going to prevail here. We're not going to commit such a frightening act of self-harm. Mm-hmm. And then it happened. The results came in and now it's happened. The UK has left the European Union. And then fast forward a year or so and, okay, I'm not American, but who's in charge of the United States affects us all. And it was the same thing. Oh, sanity will prevail. And then if if you'll pardon me expressing a not very controversial opinion, probably in the podcast sphere, sanity did not prevail. And things have only really got weirder since. And now it's kind of it's transcended like people's choices through elections. A virus has, <laughs> has spread across the world. No one voted for that and it's happening. And now I'm locked down in the countryside for probably more than half a year. Like what the hell's going on? Um, it's insane. Yeah. It's insane. I, mean, I think, I think in, in my case, when you mentioned um, what happened in America in 2016, um, because so the backstory is that that was when I was still in college. Mm. Um, and Hillary Clinton actually went to my college. So right. um, I went to Wellesley College um, that's near Boston. So like as a fact, but um, that day, I remember that everyone was just waiting, basically waiting for her to win. And then the result came out. We were just like, what is happening? I think that was the first time in my life when I felt like my world just like changed completely. Mm, yeah. That I guess my sense of what's normal, my sense of what's supposed to happen did not happen. And things just start to get weirder from there so I can totally like feel you when you're talking about like what happened to UK and the EU like Mm -hmm. um, because me living in America back then that was what impacted me tremendously Um, and of course with the virus right now um, it's just like even just thinking how I guess like you leave your house you wear a mask and that has become such normalcy and when you look back like this has not even been for a full year yet Mm, yeah um and I should probably say for like anyone who's a little skeptical listening and thinking, oh, Angus is, was just heartbroken because the side he wanted to win some votes lost. <laughs> well, I, that had happened plenty of times before. Like I had voted in the Scottish referendum. I voted for independence, didn't get it. Mm. Uh, I'm a left-leaning person. The right-wing party has won the British election. They've won like three in a row now. That's a little dispiriting, but that doesn't have the same quality of weirdness Um Another thing, the the only kind of instance where I remember feeling this weirdness before, you know, the the, the great wave of it circa like the last few years was when I was in high school. I don't know if you remember this, when the Large Hadron Collider was doing its big test and there were some articles going around that a hole in the universe might open up and suck us all in. That was, Mm -hmm. I felt there was one day where I felt like, whoa, everything I know might not be real. 
and that was for one day and now mm-hmm. at like a low level it, it's every day so right. i know we've completely left the plane of of gujian here and now we're into sci-fi but yeah i just don't think it can be stated enough like how much <laughs> how much weird and science fiction literature is doing for me right now thankfully Indeed. it's like i know i mean i turned to science fiction previously for the thrill and now that my reality has become somewhat more horrifying and quote-unquote thrilling than science fiction I actually mm. decided for comfort that I think a part of me feels that if writers, if translators, if readers are imagining the worst future, then perhaps in some messed up timeline or world space that we can possibly purge the worst future by speaking of it through science yeah. fiction. So that's kind of like my little hope, but clearly I don't think whoever runs America right now reads a lot of science fiction. So I don't nah. think he reads. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There are some complaints that are so obvious and so easy to make. I, I, I don't bother. But I feel like one upside of being disappointed is that your illusion, illusions are, are shattered and you can start to look at things in a new light. Yeah. I feel like we're, yeah. we're getting like, a bit yeah. lost now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just it's like this conversation, this tangent is also very interesting. So I'm just mm. kind of like, thinking about it yeah yeah i should we should probably get back to to chinese Mm -hmm. literature though that is what the podcast's about um so yeah it's probably the right time to get onto lighter questions um this is the miscellaneous section do you think you could suggest for the listeners a chinese word of the day uh if you don't have one i have one pre kind of in my head even if you do have one i'll still bust out my one if you want to go first you can go first. Just All go right. for it. All right. So this is one I learned today because, um, well, long story short, I was thinking, okay, what, what does what does Gujian mean? I think I had remembered Gu is the character for ancient. Like if you mm-hmm. visit a Chinese water town, they're often called a Gujian, uh, ancient town. But Jian, mm-hmm. I thought, mm, I know some Jian characters. What's this one? And I checked. And if I got it right, uh, the jian in Gujian is a two-sided sword, a Chinese style of uh, sword. Have I, I've got that right, right haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know much about them. My, um, I did notice an article I read on them gave as a, like a, some kind of a parallel, the Japanese katana. It said, oh, you know how there's a, a Japanese sword with a name, the katana? Well, there is a special sword in China too. It's the jian. And I guess that gets back to my my earlier point. If you wrote a sentence in English and it said the man was holding a katana, you'd have a vision mm-hmm. of a guy, possibly a Japanese guy holding a, or just a nerd holding this particular mm-hmm. kind of sword. Whereas if you wrote in English, I saw a man holding a jian, your mm-hmm. average English language reader would be like, what? what is a jian? Even though it's a perfectly straightforward thing to get your head around it. Great. Actually, when you, um, when you say jian, because I also practice uh, wushu, so Chinese oh, martial arts for cool. back in college, and we refer to the kind of jian in Gujian Qi as just straight sword. Mm. So I think that's the name for it, at least in martial art terms. It's right. just like a straight sword. It's straight. To kind of uh, draw a difference between that versus kind of like the heavier sense of what you were talking about, the heavier sense of medieval, like double-handed like, right. like, slashing thing. So yeah, the jian is meant to be more like slender and more somewhat graceful slash elegant. Right. But, yeah, people want to see what a jian looks like. Play gu jian, and you'll get a <laughs> lot of them. You upgrade them as you go. So mm. 
I remember thinking that when it threw you in with the the brother character, this really strong guy. It's like, whoa, mm. this sword looks like a very nice sword. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this yet. And then, sure enough, <laughs> you get sent down to Earth as the main character, and he's got a wooden stick. And I was like, okay, this is this is more like it. And I'm just like, okay, that's me. <laughs> like, I like feel myself resonating a lot with like the younger brother, which is the actual um, protagonist in the black mm. suit, not the brother, because I'm just kind of like. I'm not used to like being really powerful. I just want to like live my life as a mortal and like fight monkeys and like laugh at rich people and that's it. Mm. But anyways. I'm in my family on both sides. I'm the oldest brother and the oldest cousin. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, so I think initially when it wasn't clear which character you were going to be for the rest of the game, I was like, yeah, this younger brother needs to learn his lesson. (laughs) <laughs> and when I meet someone who's um I tell them that I'm the oldest cousin or the oldest sibling and they're like they've been the youngest one their whole childhood they're like, they kind of I can see this look in their eye where they're like you you swine <laughs> but yeah what's, what's what's your word of the day so actually I was gonna suggest something um that also contains the character Jian so yay so I guess the um I was thinking about the core of the Gu Jian games and it's actually quite a complex not like word, but phrase I'm going to talk about, but it's four characters. Um, it's qin xin jian po. Qin xin jian po. So, yep. So that came up first um, during gu jian first. And I guess that phrase just stayed and became kind of like a promotional phrase that lasted throughout the series. But essentially, um, so to take it apart character by character, qin is like the traditional kind of music element. I don't even know if there's direct translation for it, but it's basically like a harp horizontal it's like a stringed element um sorry a stringed instrument not element um but i don't even know if there's like direct translation for it because in some translations i've seen they just call it the pinyin the tin that's like the first character and the second character is uh xin so heart the third character is jian so sword like we said just now and the fourth character po means like the soul so put Mm -hmm. together is that you have the heart of said musical instrument and the soul of the sword um Uh, and it's used to describe a person's kind of character and i think that's really interesting because it really embodies the essence of xia the idea of like heroism the idea of self-sacrifice the idea of kind of like um improving yourself to become stronger but at the same time carrying responsibility to save the world or to cultivate yourself so i think that's a very visual embodiment of the idea of xia that mm. comes throughout all of the wuxia and xianxia and also the essence of the guqian games of how basically you should kind of sharpen your soul like a sword to mm. be able to fight all the darkness and all the bad people but at the same time have a heart that's soft and open and just kind so i think that's the general vibe i've gotten from these games and i think it's just like a very nice phrase in general it just feels very educated yeah I think like my just just drawing from my as a kid not being mm. a, a China obsessive but having seen a little bit of Wuxia in films, a thing that stuck with me is the heroes of those films are never thugs and they often dress quite nicely as well. They've, they're mm. kind of I'm trying to think like of a good equivalent of a phrase, maybe something like a war a warrior poet. Not that every do great poetry, mean. but yeah, that they've got a poetic soul but they mm-hmm. could probably beat you up in a fight if they needed to. Yeah. It's like that kind of degree of mixture of violence and elegance, I would say. So it's that kind of aesthetic. It's like a lot mm. of wuxia swag. So. 
right uh lends itself well to those final fantasy hairstyles um mm -hmm. yeah who who's your favorite character from any gujian game i'm wondering if it might be the protagonist from the first one uh, if yeah, that's not right. too hard yeah it's like i i love him as like a character and also i also love his nemesis so them as like i guess a pair of people who mirror each other and also as this couple i share uh, i ship secretly so i love <laughs> what are their names um so they all have like really long forward names oh. um sorry four character names but the protagonist is a uh, bai li tu su and the uh, nemesis is a uh, ouyang shaogong ouyang shaogong okay yep so it's like very complex names and i think it's like probably the pain in the ass to translate their names into English because it just takes up like a very long line in general. Right. Um, but yeah, so I know that Guzian 1 is like not translated. I know the graphics aren't great, but it just holds a very special place in my heart as I've re-emphasized. Totally, yeah. I mean, I only got a few, I only watched like 10 odd minutes of the gameplay. And mm -hmm. I think, like I said earlier, I could, I could see there was like a, a labor of love and Right. If, if there wasn't, if technical proficiency was lacking, you could get the sense that if they made another game, provided, you know, the time and the money, they were going to get better because the effort was already there. And then sure enough, they did. Whereas like right. Fable, uh, that game was cracking from the start. And then the second game was like a little bit, you know, it had some, some flab to it. It was, the story wasn't as tight. The graphics didn't look as sharp, even if it looked more expensive. And then the third one, everything I heard was like, God, I just never want to play that. They've, um, it's like, I don't know, a string on an instrument goes from being nicely tuned to almost falling off the instrument because they, they already had it nailed from the start. So the, the effort wasn't there. Damn, I'm really, I'm really um, not getting to the point, am I? Uh, <laughs> right, so we've had, yeah. I question I left out. So sorry if I, if I threw you off here. But I think it's it's too fun to leave out in the show. Mm -hmm. uh, I've asked lis uh, not listeners. I've asked guests in the last few episodes if their if the story we were discussing was a drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. What would it be? Oh, Do you think oh Gujian could be a beverage? Definitely. Um, wait, that's an amazing question. I hope I had prepared for it because I'm like also very into alcoholic beverages. Um, mm. So right now, I'm just kind of like I want to answer this question really well. Okay. I don't know, because I also see the three games as three different entities. Uh, um, right. So it's very hard to kind of pick out a common liquor for like all of them. Mm. Uh, but I don't know. I think I see, I see Guzian first, like um, the first game, at least as a kind of like strong, smoky, classic whiskey. Right. That's kind of how I would see it. Um, the second one is more like a, like kind of, um, I don't know, like a lighthearted cocktail that contains like a certain sweet sense. Mm. Um, I can think of one right now, but that's kind of the vibe I'm thinking of. Thinking of. And right. I think in three is kind of like a little bit of everything that is more kind of like, hmm. yeah, I that's can't... my answer for now. Yeah. Fair what enough. What are you thinking? This is a stupid answer. Green tea. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank, thanks for giving us a different flavor of booze for all three games. Uh, much appreciated. Oh wait, now, I, I realized. Oh, I think oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna call Guzian Three like a classic, like salty dog cocktail. That's what I think it is. Okay. It's like salty. So yeah. Excellent. 
you've done we've done a wee bit of promo for you talking about the um, Philip K. Dick uh, translation you did. Although I don't think we said which which book was it that you brought into Chinese. Um, so the English version is called uh, I think Searching for Philip K. Dick, written mm. by Annie R. Dick, which is his third wife, I think. Right. Yeah. So um, it's the only uh, biography of PKD that's written by someone who's like in his family. Um, and it's just very close to heart in general. It describes a lot of his personal details and what it's like to interact with him in person. And she went to interview like his other family members and his old friends um, in Berkeley. So um, I think it's, it's, well, it's unique in the sense that it's very personal um, as a biography. It talks less about his achievements as kind of like, oh, one of the great literary heroes of the past century, but more kind of like what he is like as a person. And um, I think it deals a lot with theory of mind, of um, trying to understand him, trying to understand where his inspirations came from. Um, And it's just so kind of deeply emotional and personal. So Mm -hmm. it's a very touching biography in general. And it's just a great read on its own as well, even if you're not necessarily into PKD. Cool. And um, giving you a little bit more scope for some self-promo here, where can listeners find you and your work online? And where can they read or even, if possible, buy your translations? Where can we send them? Um, so for English into Chinese, um, like we said before, uh, um, my most recent translated book is the PKD biography. So you can just buy it um, in Chinese. For Chinese into English, most of my translation uh, translation works are um, like published in Clark's World, I would say. So um, I did do a lot of work for Clark's World and they're all just online. So you can just like look up um, different stories I've done. And to find me, you can just look at my Twitter. Basically, I check once in a while. I don't necessarily always talk and tweet, but um, I do check it. So um, I think Twitter is like a good place to find me. And that's uh, at Emily XN Jin. Is that right? Yes. Excellent. Another kind of promo question, but this time not a self-promo. Um, if listeners want to check out more, well, if they want to play Gujian 3, they can get it off Steam. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were giving them a more general like direction for some wuxia or xianxia to check out, is there anywhere close to your heart that you would send them? Um, I think it goes both ways. For people who read Chinese, there's actually one book I want to recommend. Um, the title uh, in Chinese is called Xian. So, which literally it's about someone who's in a xianxia system, but um, the protagonist, he's actually like a software engineer and he upgrades himself by making more complex like softwares and learning more programming languages. So it's like a really cool way to write um, Xianxia in general. So if you read Chinese, that's um, online. You can just look it up. It's a great web novel. And for English readers, um, I know that, um, do you go on Wuxia World? That's um, the last two episodes I've done have been about Wuxia World novels, uh, Necropolis Immortal, and well, one which is on Wuxia World, but was originally in mm. print, uh, Seven Killers by Gu Long. So mm. I've not read a whole novel on there, but um, I've been looking at it recently on the show. And our listeners who've been tuning into the Wuxia season will know about Wuxia World. Right. So yeah, I think that's the place you can just look at, just dive in, um, find your favorite. And I know that there are amazing translators working um, 
for Wuxia World, who's just been bringing a lot of um, great web novels from Chinese into English as well. So that's like mm. definitely a treasure cave to dig into. Yeah, and like, so it's been a new world for me. And although some of what I've seen on there is perhaps not my cup of tea, just from the perspective、mm-hmm. of like, I don't know, literary diversity or following. Like I'm, a, I'm, I don't know. I'm a very curious, nosy person. I love、uh, exploring both physical places and just like weird nooks and crannies. And like the literature you can read on Wuxia World, especially the Shenxia, I don't think there's anything else like it. It's very unique.、Mm. And if you guys are intrigued by like the, anyone who's not read any Shenxia and is intrigued by all the talk of it being a, some kind of a relative of video games, yeah, from that perspective, it's fascinating and it's unique.、Mm. So yeah. <laughs> also, very addictive. To be frank,、mm. like sometimes when when I'm just kind of like before bed, I read a few chapters, and it often turns into like I read till like six a.m. Like it's not even that the story is like great, but it's just somehow like very addictive. So that's why I keep on saying that I think those stories give you the same thrill as you playing a game. So right, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And last question of all, this is usually where I ask my guests, "What are you reading just now?" But、um, I'm also going to ask you, "What what have you been reading? But what have you been playing, if if anything?" Um. So, game wise, I've just been kind of. I'm still pretty obsessed with Animal Crossing on Switch, <laughs> so that's what I've been playing just now. I think it's like a very soothing way to get through your days, especially in this sad time.、Mm. Um. And with reading, um. So I'm not reading. It's not science fiction. It's more kind of like, unfortunately, it's like boring academic stuff. But、um, this book is pretty cool.、Um, it's called *The Neg Anthropocene* by Bernard Stiegler, the French、uh, philosopher,、um, and translated by Daniel Ross into English、um, from French into English. And in this book, basically,、um, Stiegler, as a philosopher, kind of talks about the current sad, sad world we're living in, and talks about the climate, talks about Um, politics and talks about basically how the human future is getting gradually kind of more bleak and hopeless. So it's a very I don't know it's a very like our time kind of philosophy book to read, but it's also quite academic and quite heavy. So it's kind of part for my、um, my like research. But if、right. anyone's interested and want to read sad philosophy, feel free to dive in. <laughs> It's well. It's not too coincidental because those are the times we、mm-hmm. live in. But、um, as I've been doing my my work, which as of this week has been typesetting, so it's the kind of work I can do、uh, whilst listening to something in my in my ears.、Um, so I've been listening to the lectures of Mark Fisher, who、mm-hmm. what what is he concerned with?、Um, he called it capitalist realism. So the idea that the economic system we live in, not his idea, isn't that it will never go away, but he's talking about how the idea that it can't be changed is so embedded. And how it's going nowhere good. And、uh, he 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 passed away not so long ago. But、um, again, we're talking about people who are being proven correct by by history, and it seems like he's one of them. So haven't been reading him, but、um, I can. When you <laughs> when you say you're reading sad things about the state of the world,、mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you're not alone.、Uh, that was a nice long chat. I think this is probably the longest chat I've had since、um, we had Ken Leo on talk about、uh, vagabonds. So yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just amazed we talking about a video game took us to so many places. I didn't really see that coming.、Oh, I know. I think we just, I don't know. Talking was also fun, so we just kind of 
we're doing it. <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, Emily. And yeah, you're you're welcome back anytime. Not the next episode, that would be a bit strange, <laughs> but it would be great to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really enjoyable. And I also was able to kind of bounce off a lot more ideas from you. And that was mm. just great. Talk about Guzian and not just about science fiction. It's like very refreshing. Right. <laughs> well, it's the magic of, of podcasts, I guess. Well, we're almost at the end of the show. Thanks again to Emily Jin for coming on and having such a wide-ranging conversation. Uh, so just the plugs left now. So here's something I've not uh, pushed for quite a wee while, but I'd like to put more emphasis on this. Um, listeners, if you would like to do something helpful for the show, um, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast provider for the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. iTunes is... You know, it's probably the best one, but like Google Podcasts as well, if you can leave a, a positive review or five-star rating on there, that would help me uh, boost the show, you know, in the magical internet algorithms and help more people find the show. So yeah, that would be a fantastic way you can support the show. If you'd like access to all of the different bonus shows I've put up on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash fic. I'd be eternally grateful, obviously. If you'd like to contribute to the show, but not with a monthly donation, just one with a one-off one, because, you know, seems pretty reasonable, um, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash churchific. Uh, links for both of those will be in the show notes up on Podbean. Um, of course, the most uh, amazing thing you can do for the show is spreading the word. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your nemesis if you don't fall in love with them first in the fanfic version, of course. And with that mental image lingering in your head, I'll say, Zai Jian. <laughs>